feel better? Mm-hmm. I do too. All right. I drink a lot of water now, so. Oh, are we going? Gotta keep them kidney stones in check. Gotta keep them in check. That's why I wasn't here for the last episode that came out two weeks ago. Episode 8, featuring Jason Brandon? <laughs> Jason Brandon. Jason Brandon. He's a, I wish I could have met him. I still haven't met him yet. No, you haven't. Yeah, we'll have to get him down again. Yeah. He's, a, he's a really cool guy. Yeah. Welcome to episode 9 of the podcast. Life, death, and everything in between. I'm we David. S- I'm Jacob. We seem a lot more chilled out for the intro of this uh, <laughs> of this episode. We've taken fan criticism we've to heart. Fan criticism to heart, and uh, we're really crying. we're trying to do better. <laughs> no, and I'm not crying. <laughs> Our fans do not cry. Listen, listen. No, I'm trying my hardest. I'm working real hard to not scream into the mic right now because <laughs> I have a big fucking urge to watch your um, language. Yeah, we can't. There are sensitive ears listening. All right. No, we're just razzing you guys. Yeah, we're just razzing you guys. Oh, Andy's. <laughs> and there it is. There it is. He's back. He's back without a kidney stone. Actually, well, I do still have <laughs> two, oh, more. You, two I have, more. I have two more in my kidney right now. They are uh, one millimeter in diameter each. Oh, that's So right. they're quite a bit smaller. But the thing is, what we're con- what they're concerned about is whether or not it's go- they're going to keep growing, or they're just going to stay where they are and go ahead and pass sometime soon. Did they? So I, I don't I don't know about the medications, but there is something that helps break those up. Yeah, but that's they're only going to give that to you if the kidney stone is six millimeters in diameter or larger. Well, why the hell? We'll drink cranberry. Because so your your the, the ureter. The ureter is what comes down from the kidney right. to the bladder, right? Yes. Okay. I guess. The, I, I don't know why I'm... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the, the, ureter, the ureter is four millimeters max in diameter. Okay. My kidney stone was four millimeters in diameter. That's a perfect size. So it was scraping along. Oh, through oh there. God. You have to use that word. <laughs> it, that's, what it, that's exactly what it was doing. And oh, that's... Shit, that you, you guys have no fucking idea of the kind of pain that I went through. The, especially the last time uh, when it was passing from my when it was finally going from through the the rest the last little bit of the ureter to the bladder it was the worst absolute hell I've ever experienced in my entire life it well, was they say it's comparable to what childbirth I I was I was at work and it was around nine o'clock in the morning and I'm I was working on paperwork and all of the sudden. It felt like someone stuck me in my back, and it was weird. Okay, so the stone was in my left kidney, right? Um, so it was passing down from into my left ureter to my to my bladder, right? Okay. I felt this pain in my right backside. That's where I felt this pain for okay. the last the this last little bit of it, um, and it felt like someone stuck me with a hot knife in my backside. And was twisting it. Good that's Lord. exactly what it felt like. Not that I've ever had that happen before, but that's <laughs> but what you, I what I can like imagine. What you imagine getting stabbed with a hot knife? Oh, with a hot that's knife. That's what it yeah. was. Yeah, exactly. And so that that's what I felt like. And it didn't stop for an hour and fifteen minutes. 
it went on like that for an hour and 15 minutes and it got so bad i got i started getting nauseous i was about to pass out i fell down on the floor i was in the fetal position for about 30 minutes straight Ugh. i was literally holding myself crying at work yeah at work at work on there. on a t- <laughs> 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 What, can I do anything? On the when, tile floor. When are you making lunch for us? <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty Dude. hungry. I made a duty. <laughs> anyway, uh, so so in between this, it started hurting. So I immediately took. Uh, so the medication that they prescribed me, the pain medication, was a hydrocodone. Right? It was uh, the five, uh, um, not milliliter. What am I thinking? Milligram. Milligram. Five. It was a five milligram. Hydrocodone mixed with 325 milligram uh, acetaminophen. Yeah, yeah, which is Tylenol. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That, um, they called it. Is that codeine three? No, that's not uh, no, codeine. That's no. Buffer. No. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs> but uh, so I take this and it does nothing to the pain. Absolutely nothing. So okay. I take another one and it starts working a little bit. But by the time it started working, uh, it it the stone passed into my bladder and it was over. So so that's the only part that hurts. It doesn't hurt when you're actually peeing it out. Nope, nope. So I'll I'll, I'll get to there. So I uh, it passes into my bladder and I I'm kind of this is kind of what I'm thinking in my head. I'm like, okay, it's it should be in the bladder by now. Everything should be good to go. And that's I, I was correct. So I sat there for about an I sat there for about an hour, um, totally. Zonked out of my mind, dude. I took two of those things and I was sitting there staring at the desk <laughs> for an hour, just going with my mouth open. How just did make these. Just <laughs> I was just I was just going, but I was just like I was thinking in my in my mind, like I I had thoughts running through my brain, but I was just like, did they make you itch? Did you get the itch? no? No, I never. I never got itchy. Is that a thing of it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I never got itchy. But uh, after about an hour, hour and a half, I had to go pee again. I strained it, and I literally I was peeing, and then my pee stopped, and then I was the about stone to ask. Out. I was about to ask if it was kind of like whenever you have a garden hose and you put your thumb over the end. Did you kind of get that effect? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. And then it and then it came out into the strainer, and that was it. Yeah, no, yeah. And no pain there. No pain whatsoever. Okay, well, how big around is the urethra? The urethra uh, max can get about to like ten millimeters in, in diameter. Okay, yeah, some, so yeah, some slack. Yeah, yeah, you got some, you got some flex. Yeah, Pretty flex. <laughs> All right. But uh, yeah, so that's out of me. Um, Did you I, keep it? I've still got it. I've got it in my car, actually. Okay. Oh, I'll, I'll have to show you after we get done yeah. recording. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, you won't be able to see it that well. It's tiny as fuck, man. It's really small. Like when you see it in person, it is extremely small. But like that just goes to show that little bitty fucking pebble destroyed me, dude. It ruined me Did, completely. Was there any blood involved, <laughs> like when you were peeing? No, not while I was peeing. Uh, so there was one time where I had uh, blood in my urine, and that was that was it. it was like one little bit of blood when I peed, and that was. Hmm. Two weeks before I passed it. Okay. So yeah, it was it was uh, it was really weird. But yeah, that was the only time I had blood involved. So as far as passing um, a stone, I mean, uh, it was that that average time. Uh, yeah. Like- so yeah. So mine mine took a little bit longer than average because it was big in size. Four four millimeters is pretty large. It's a little bit bigger than average. Uh, so uh, 
it took a little bit longer. Usually people say um, from the start, from the first time you start having pains. Well, okay, so what happens is you first start feeling like you have a urinary tract infection where you're, you feel like you have to pee all the time, but you're not. That's that's the start of it. From then until passing it. So ba- basically your organs are spasming because your organs know something's wrong. Yeah, they are pissed off. They're like, okay, something's going on. We got to figure this out. Yeah, so... um. So from from feeling that from feeling that which it, which Did you say sedimental <laughs> you rascal which what what's happening there is the stone is dropping down from the kidney into the ureter that's what you're feeling right there um, from that from the start of that until passing the stone out uh, can take anywhere from like three two to three weeks to a month and a half so okay Stupid. yeah yeah which yeah but um. It's out now, thank God, dude. Because I was, I was getting really upset. I, I don't. <laughs> I, I was maybe that's an understatement, but <laughs> no, I was, I, I was upset. But I was like, it was to the point where I was like getting depressed about it because I, I was drinking two plus gallons of water a day, and and uh, this medication that they had me on, Tam, Tamsulosin, I think that's what it is. It's uh, Flomax. That was my lawyer. Okay. Uh, <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> oh, Tammy Sue Lawson. That was my lawyer. Anyway, uh, so this is uh, this. It's Flomax, and what it does is it opens everything up for you to pee constantly, and any fluid you take in is immediately it's coming out of you, um, like within twenty minutes. Mm. It's really fast. Uh, so that that was on that. So I was pissing every 15, 20, 30 minutes. Every day and every night. I was peeing four, five, six times a night. And I was getting up. I'd had no sleep for like four or five weeks at this point. I was exhausted. I was depressed. I was really upset about it. And I finally passed it. And the the feeling of passing it and finally having this done and over with was single-handedly one of the best feelings I'm I've so ever had happy. in my life. No, I seriously, though. It, it, was, it was incredible. It was awesome. But uh, that's the story of uh, old Jakey Poo's kidney stone. stone. <laughs> that was good. That was good time. <laughs> so, would you want to do it again? Uh, yeah, Maybe. I. You know what? I'd recommend it. It doesn't have a choice. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't have better a get pumped up about yeah. it. So when I uh, when I went to the emergency room, they told me, the doctor uh, overnight told me she was like she was like so with the size of, co- of stone that you have and the age that you are you are we're bringing one- in a lawyer and he, you're going to fill out a will <laughs> she, <laughs> no, you're going to die <laughs> she was like she was like you are one in 300,000 wow so yeah because Lucky like, you. i'm extremely young to be having kidney stones like this so hmm. yeah so she was basically what we got from that is i'm probably going to be dealing with kidney stones for the rest of my life yeah so you had been talking a little bit about diet modification so yeah, yeah a little bit know, one of the things uh you drink 
you used to drink quite a bit of tea, but that's... Oh, all the time. I drank tea all the time. I was coming back into drinking soda because I had I, I didn't drink soda from 2012 until... Maybe that was the problem. Maybe you should have kept up with the soda intake. That way your body was used to it. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, maybe. Up that kidney immunity. But be- between, between the end of... 20- we're, we're not doctors. Don't listen to that. Be- between the end of 2018 until, until I started passing the stone... Uh, I had started drinking soda again. I was drinking a lot of tea. I really, I was drinking, I was heavily drinking coffee every day, two, three, maybe even four cups of coffee every day, uh, just to keep me awake because of my new work schedule from seven to three. So it was, it was difficult for me to wake up. So I'd be drinking, you know, tons of coffee. So, uh, and she said that was it. She was like, she was like, when that caffeine isn't washed through your body with water after, it's going to sit in your kidneys and it's going to calcify. Hmm. So, uh, it, it like it turns into uric acid, I think, and then it starts calcifying in your kidneys. Okay, and that's 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 it. And so, so. and you've you've quit caffeine, maybe no caffeine for a month and a half now. Okay, yeah, no, nothing but water. I haven't even drank juice for um, literally nothing but water. Gotcha. So. Yeah, well, I mean, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know if we want to talk about it on this podcast, on this episode, or not, but. uh uh, the difference between having caffeine and not having caffeine is well, sure, yeah. I mean, let's drastic. take a. Uh, I can't. <laughs> no, it really is. It's it's awesome. Uh, so from having caffeine every day, uh, literally every day, seven days a week, two, three, four cups of coffee a day. Um, by th- so I'd have them around uh between seven to eight thirty and nine o'clock in the morning, right? Mm. Uh, by three to four ish. I would start crashing really hard mm-hmm. and be completely exhausted. So I think you and me have been caffeine free for about the same amount of time. And yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly how, how it would be uh, mm-hmm. when you're drinking caffeine. Yeah, there's that mid-afternoon crash. And that's, yeah. you know, everyone's familiar with that. And yeah. You just get more caffeine and and you're okay. Mm-hmm. But now, now that I haven't had caffeine for a month and a half, uh, I have started noticing uh, that over the month and a half, I'm having more energy mm-hmm. throughout the day. I'm not feeling as groggy in the mornings either. I, I can wake right. up yeah. and wake completely up, and that which grog- is really nice. That grogginess people feel, you know, oh, I got to have my cup of coffee, otherwise I'm an asshole for the day. Mm. Technically, that's withdrawal. Yeah, exactly, because you haven't had caffeine for, the, yeah, it's about 24 hours at that point without caffeine. Sure. So. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's been nice. I I can I you know I I don't I, I mean I, at this point I'm never I'm never drinking caffeine again. Uh, I, I with the pain that I went through, I'm completely okay drinking water for the rest of my mm. life. <laughs> you know, just fucking stay hydrated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I guess that's what I I have to give to everyone <laughs> from that. Yeah. Stay, stay hydrated. hydrated. <laughs> Drink, don't get kidney stones. Don't get kid. Don't do that. <laughs> Not recommended. Yell at your body every night. Don't make <laughs> kidney stones. Standing in front of a full body. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> no. Stop being fat. Stop being fat. Scare <laughs> <Get> out. <laughs> Can you punch yourself? Is that bad when you have kidney stones and you punch your kidney? Granted, uh, punching the kidney in the first Jake, place, not a good... Uh, hold on. No, don't do this here. <laughs> <laughs> do, do this oh, not here. 
I don't want to deal with uh, what might happen. <laughs> okay. Just go home and do it. Let us know. Let's go yeah. ride a roller coaster. Yeah. yeah, that actually, actually, that is a thing that people have suggested to uh, have a pregnancy too like to help move. Labor. Yeah. I wonder what fighter pilots do. Do they just say, "Hey, I, I need to hop in the uh, F-16, uh, you know, do, <laughs> do some uh, barrel rolls? I'm going to do some flybys maneuvers. to build morale for the troops. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I, got, I got Kitty Stone. I'm going to barrel it out. <laughs> he's, he's doing marriage. He's like, <laughs> just turning, just, <laughs> <laughs> and then silence, and then, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Oh God, <laughs> what the? What happened, Roger? He's like, he's I like, passed. oh God. Oh nothing. I I just had to let out some. I, I've been pent up a couple days. <laughs> ah, I, yeah, I get, getting getting a little R, getting a little R and R up there. Huh? <laughs> huh? Yeah, we get it. Yeah, you love that jet. <laughs> All right. Well, let, you know what? Let's let's go ahead and jump into the topic of today and probably next episode's podcast. Oh, there's no probably about it. It, it, it is going to be a long one, folks. So hang in there. And guess what? You know what? We did. We did the uh, the research. We did everything. Uh, we asked you guys what you wanted. We asked. It's okay. been a long time coming. Over it's been a month a long now. Time coming. <laughs> you guys voted for Area Fifty One, and, and that's what we're talking about. Is today. the episode. And I'm really excited about it. I've been wanting to do this one for a long time. This is one of the reasons I wanted to start a podcast is so I could sit here and talk on mic for a long ass time about UFOs and aliens. And kidney stones. And kidney stones. <laughs> so now we're 20 minutes, uh, 17 minutes into kidney stones. Yeah, that's right. So this is kidney stones in Area 51. <laughs> now, so to clarify something today, we're really not, we're not. There's no aliens. There's new, no UFOs today. Yeah. So we're in, going uh, chronologically in historical order. For the most part, there's going to be a little bit of jumping around. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So in researching Area 51, I noticed that a, there, there's a lot of Area 51 documentaries. And for the most part, they're about the same. I mean, we we generally start around the inception of... of uh, of Area 51 as a facility. So that's around 1955. Some podcast, some uh, some YouTube videos I watched, they touched a little bit on history before, but since there wasn't any super detailed timeline leading up to Area 51, I thought it'd be kind of neat to start there. So today, I mean, it's we're going to be talking a little bit of uh, just a very small amount about uh, history in Nevada, just mining and mining development in the area around Groom Lake. Um, there's going to be a lot of aeronautical history and a little bit of war history in here. Uh, my thinking there is, you know, what we know about Area 51, definitely uh, aircraft, you know, SR-71, U-2 spy plane. Those are developed at Area 51. What we know about Area 51, yeah. <clears throat> For those so of you secret, that don't secret know what planes the are, SR- 71 is 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 the sr-171 or the sr-71 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 was a jet created i mean it was a military jet so yeah yeah that just yeah. for those that don't know yeah the u-2 was uh, well the was the u-2 the first spy spy plane if we're in technicality no it wasn't the first spy plane but it was the, the first, first successful s- well plane. yeah we could say successful yeah. definitely the first 
very high altitude spy plane. And so that's just for everyone that knows to to know. So we're going to get into those in the next episode. We're going to talk a little bit about the U2 and the SR-71. And we're going to talk about uh, incidents after uh, Area 51 was created. And then in that episode, yeah, we're going to get more into the alien stuff. Are there UFOs there? According to Bob Lazar. Yes. According to some other uh, civilian uh, uh, contractors. Yes, there's UFOs out there. But um, still, there's a lot of speculation. Is this guy telling the truth? Um, he's a believable person, but we're going to get in. Lazar, yes. Yeah. He's an extremely if, if, believable if, person. If he's, if he's, he's very personable about yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if he's lying, then. He's doing a damn good job of it, and he's been doing a damn good job of it for decades. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. But uh, we'll we'll get to him more next time. So. So let's jump in here. So uh, the area around Groom Lake, uh, so we're looking at 1858 at this point. So west, westward expansion still going on. Uh, we haven't quite, uh, uh, <coughs> the 50 states haven't quite been developed yet. But uh, so we start, we start discovering gold, lead, silver mines uh, around 1858. And... Around 1864. So let's 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 back up a second. Sure. Groom Lake is oh. in the southern part of Nev- the the Nevada desert, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. South, a little towards the central, uh, central Nevada, towards central Nevada. But okay. yeah, we would yeah. definitely consider it uh, southern Nevada. Um, real quick, we need to take a quick break. We forgot our ceremonial whiskey shot uh, today. Oh boy. We're doing a shot of Henderson like we've done at least the past one time, maybe the past two times. <laughs> the past single time. Past single time. Okay, here's yours. Yeah. Jacob's taking a little easy because we need to be a little easy pie. mindful of uh, the old kidney stones. The old kidney stones. You know, when I was uh, at the emergency room, my mom was like, I was bringing up, I was like, I'm never drinking caffeine again. And then uh, I was like, I'm never drinking beer again or anything like that. She was like, you know, I've heard that liquor can help like like discourage your body from creating them but Sounds apparently like what that's an alcoholic old, says that's so. a, yeah, <laughs> apparently that's like a, i don't know if that's like an old wives tale or you know something like that just something that's been told between Sounds alcoholics like for that would years have been said in 1850 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, i think that's all they drank back then is whiskey because <laughs> yeah. uh, there's no water out especially out in these parts there's no water out here so we got whiskey yeah, yeah. that stuff's not going bad <laughs> yeah. all right bottoms up Let's dink them uh, dink them Area 51. And sink em. Uh, sink em, sorry. Dink em and sink em. Oh, that's gross. It's not, it's not the... It's probably trademarked. It's, it's, uh... I don't know if they've trademarked it. Shout out to Good Mythical Morning. Anyway. Yeah, Isn't that it? Them, Dink guess. it and sink it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. A couple of millionaires. <laughs> yeah, I like oh, those like guys. 15 million, 16 million We don't need to sub over there. Seriously? Since like 2012 or whatever, whenever they started. Jesus. Do you know both of those guys are uh, engineers? They have engineering degrees? I believe it. They seem smart as, so, smart as hell. Something yeah. about how they look, mm-hmm. I can believe that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what that means, but yeah. they look like they would be engineers. That's a compliment, if yeah, anything. Well, yeah. Okay, so back to the timeline. So we're in mid mid to late 1800s. So this part, this part of the uh, Area 51 story, this is this is just we're going to focus on 
colonization around the area. This is going to be a very brief part. Uh, okay, so 1858, that's when we uh, discovered our precious metals and lead. Uh, 1864, that's when Nevada became the 36th state in the United States. Now, 1864 uh, was also when the Civil War stopped. Oh, good time. the North one. This is a good year then. Yeah. Uh, Nevada, it became known as the Silver State because there was quite a bit of silver found there. A lot of lead too, uh, but yeah, lead's a bad element, so we don't care about lead anymore. Anyway, so eighteen <clears> seventies, <throat> uh, we see the English Groom Lead Mines Limited. Fight. Uh, this is a, a mining company, the English Groom Lead Mines. Uh, they financed what's called the Conception Mine. It's often referred to as Groom Mine, but this mine, this is this is located basically at the southern end of the Groom Mountain Range. And where this is located, this is located by a large salt flat. And this salt flat we know is Groom Lake. And this is this is where our our uh, Area 51 K- is Kind of like the same thing. Everyone's heard of like the Bonneville salt flats where people race and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. And so and we're going to see that, uh, you know, I, I really had to trim trim up. Uh, I, I mean, I went bonkers with with uh, all this research. But uh, we're we're going to talk about a couple salt flats, obviously Groom Groom Lake. Um, but we'll get to other salt flats later. But Air Force, they liked them because they're flat. You don't really have to you don't have to work the land so much because it's already flat. You just kind of maybe scrape the ground a little bit, maybe Plus put it's down some pavement. Literally in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So that's another reason why they like it. Yeah. No one's going to be showing up on an house. So. And, uh, of course, our, our listeners can't see this. I do have pictures of this isn't necessarily the groom mine area, but this is just generally uh, th- this is the scenery. Just large, flat. There's nothing out there. Rocks, mountains, sand. There's a lot of a lot of sagey plants. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. it's a dried lake. Yeah. So this it's is big and flat. Well, yeah, Groom Lake is. Uh, yeah, all the salt flats are. Uh, but this is just the general. This isn't the lake. This is uh, what we're looking at right now. This is just basically a desert. We're just looking oh, at okay. a picture of a desert. Yeah. Mm, this is the terrain through a lot of Nevada, uh, parts of California, obviously Arizona, New Mexico. But nothing out there. Okay, so... We see the con- the conception mine start in the 1870s. 1885, we see a family in, in this. They're not too important to the story, but kind of fun to learn about them. But the Shahan family, they had been obtaining properties for mining in the area around Conception Mine. They did a- acquire Conception Mine. Uh, and then later on, so 19, 1915, 1917, the, the Shahan family, they had been acquiring a lot of mines. But Conception Mine specifically, they leased it to Tom McCormick, uh, to, to, to one Tom McCormick. So he, uh, he, mined out, he mined out quite a bit of silver. Through the mine, uh, he and at the time over six million dollars. Yeah, it, it was at the time uh, it was two hundred and fifty thousand, but adjusted for inflation, oh, it was okay, okay. adjusted. Uh, so at the, again, this is uh, this is nineteen fifteen, nineteen seventeen. He'd he'd uh, mined out two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of silver. That's roughly six million today. So six qu- millies. So, <laughs> <laughs> so a good a good chunk. Uh, or two hundred and fifty thou tillies. Thou tillies. I don't. I don't understand your speech. Okay. You're too young for me. Let's move on. Okay. We will move on. Okay. So we did a little time hop there. We're gonna come back to December seventeenth, nineteen o three. So this is where we start picking up in our aircraft history. Again, aircraft history is pretty important leading up to 
Area 51. The most important. It, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we could argue that. Um, I mean, if there's if there's no aircraft technology, if there's no advancement of aircraft technology, may not have been Area 51. And without these settlers coming out into this area, um, Area 51 as we know it, it may not have happened. Um, likely, yeah, there, there probably would have been a secret base somewhere. Maybe it would have been at the same place, but so that's why it's kind of important knowing that, yeah, the Shahan family miners, they're in this area anyway. So 1903, December 17th, 1903, this is the first time that we have an aircraft up in the air with controlled flight. Now, oh yeah, from uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright. Yeah. Right, yeah. and so they weren't uh, they weren't the first ones that had been uh, had been flying uh, had been getting aircraft in the air. So we had what were, was were they the first ones that had a successful controlled flight? That's right. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. So that's important to right. Distinguish. So we're gonna dabble a little right now. We're gonna dabble a little bit in uh, aeronautics history. So we, you know, going back to the and, and it's kind of funny how they explain things. They're uh, the Wilbur the Wright Flyer. They call it the heavier than air aircraft. <laughs> kind of a, kind of an interesting description. Well, you know? anything is going to be heavier than air, <laughs> right? But however, when we look, when we go back to the late uh, late seventeen hundreds, that's when hot air balloons were invented and used. Those were considered lighter than air aircraft. Yeah, but they're way heavier than. Well, but you got to understand at the time, just the way people describe as, things. These stupid dummies. <laughs> God, they didn't know anything. They don't understand mass. What's that noise? Fools. Uh, that's a refrigerator. Compressor. God. Yeah. Ugh. We just ruined the episode. No, nah, we'll, we'll, we'll get it out with uh, the noise uh, cancellation uh, stuff. I can't read. Noise re- remover? What is it? Uh, uh-huh. Anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... So now I did say that this was their first controlled flight in in right. December 17th. Mm-hmm. That's technically not true. Uh, they... in. In the following years, mm-hmm. uh, this is the Wright Flyer 1 in 1903. In 1904, yeah. they have the Wright Flyer 2. Right. And then in 1905, that's that's when they had a pretty long controlled flight. In 1905, they flew that thing around for about 39 minutes, which, oh, keep in mind, man. this is 1905. That's, right. that's so crazy. So they're getting in the air and going, oh, my God. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. <laughs> Stay working. Stay working. <laughs> Please don't crash. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, so speaking of crashes, so... Like I said, that was probably a pretty common thing of people trying to make planes back then. Oh, it was. Yeah. So, let's see. There's another picture. There's a, another picture of the Wright Flyer. Okay, now this this man, his name is Samuel Langley. So this is going back to 1896. Uh, he, we could say he was. The first one that got a powered aircraft up in the air, mm-hmm. uh, and it was interestingly, it was steam powered, but it was not manned. What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> this thing a... must have been ten thousand pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so that is where heavier than air. So, so at this time, <laughs> That's like through this time, through through the late eighteen hundreds, people are starting to figure out how to get things up in the air and, and yeah, get yeah. sustained flight, but they're just they're stumbling around quite a bit, but. Uh, so he has the steam-powered model, and they launch it by catapult, and it flies around for a little bit. And uh, Jesus, but I it's can't am- a big steam engine, right? Yeah, Jesus, please. Oh, yeah, I'm more going back by the giant slingshot. 
Yeah. No, it was a catapult. <laughs> it was a catapult. Oh, a catapult? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had to. Yeah, so you launch. Launch it up, and then yeah, it flies around a little. You know bit. the guy in the cockpit? <laughs> no, was... no, no. This is unmanned. There's no. Oh, this no, was unmanned. Yeah, no. There, there's oh, there's okay, there's no person okay. in this. Okay. Okay. Now That's... we will get to. We're gonna get to a fun fellow here in just a is second. This picture I'm looking at the. The, the steam drones. powered? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh this is a picture of the steam powered airplane. Oh, okay. It's the the a, steam powered heavier than air aircraft. <laughs> 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 heavier than aircraft. Yeah, so uh for the people not uh not able to see this, uh you can just you look up Sam, Samuel Langley, uh, and you can just type in model after that and you'll oh, see. I'm sure the three people that listen to this will Definitely. But then those three people well, tell other J- people. J- and then those three people tell more people. And really, this okay, so we're selling this product, guys. We got to get three people under us. <laughs> it's not a pyramid scheme, okay? It's not. I don't know why everyone keeps saying it's a pyramid scheme. Stop saying <laughs> We can make a lot of money. Stop saying that, that otherwise they're going to think that it's a pyramid scheme. <laughs> Uh, but essentially, what this thing looks like—it looks like a rod with just really crude wings on it. They're they're rectangular. It's like canvas in a wood frame. Yeah, so it's so. like a rod with really <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I'm um, just kidding. Now, kids listen. Oh, this. we're going the wrong way with the pictures. This guy, I like this guy. <laughs> this guy's this guy's fun. Well, that's like a that's like a personal glider. So Otto Otto Lilenthal. He made the wing flapping machine. Please <laughs> <laughs> tell me that's what he named it. Oh, that's, that's, this that's is not the no. <laughs> <laughs> I call it the wing flapping machine. Huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can get across town so fast with this machine. So, so the so picture. Fast. So the picture we're looking at. This isn't. This isn't one of the wing flapping machines. I have a picture of it. But it, this is basically a very crude hang glider. So at this time. <laughs> People are people understand that there's oh, das fast. <laughs> people people are das fly. People are starting to understand the concept that you need you need to be moving. There needs to be wind hitting the wings to create lift. But again, they're not really understanding how to control. Right, right. So this guy, I mean, they don't have like a rudder on the back end, or I don't know if it's called a rudder, but like a like a flap to determine. Okay, so there's right. zero control. They're just getting up in the air and they're just gonna fly. <laughs> Pretty much, I mean, they're landing where they land. There is so. So this picture we're looking at, we see a guy in a what's essentially a hang glider, but he's hanging straight down. He's not like in these. Is he modern, strapped into that? Yeah, look at it. No, he's or is he just literal hang glider. is he just holding on? Oh well, this is the 1800s, so he's probably just holding on. <laughs> there's probably <laughs> balls. There's probably, you gotta have, man. You know he. Just, down an entire bottle of whiskey and he's like, he's like I'm just going for it <laughs> well, he was German so it was probably schnapps oh okay yeah <laughs> yep. running before walking kind of develop hang gliders without any kind of safety that's so insane did he die from that or did he die from like polio or something he died from disease? crashing one of these he broke his neck did he yes oh <laughs> But he probably had a fantastic time doing that. <laughs> yeah. Probably he had, so it, this wasn't like the first time he'd done it. He had he had uh, thrown himself off a cliff and he had had many successful flights with this glider. But there was just one particular day, and this this is where the the idea when they're still trying to figure out how to control things up in the air. 
their their thinking on it wasn't quite right. Mm. And so what happened is this glider takes a nosedive and he breaks his neck. It took the guy 36 hours to die. So God, after he breaks terrible. his neck, yeah, I mean, he gets to, as long as he had some wits about him, he got to consider that um, I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a failure. Well, something, has, something has gone wrong. <laughs> So, oh, so stupid. <laughs> so we're going to jump back ahead in time. We're going back to the Wright brothers. So what made them getting an aircraft in the air again, like you said, it, it, it was the fact that they figured out how to control mm-hmm. an aircraft once it was in air. Right. The first flight, they, they didn't do any turns or anything. It was just straight flights. The second one, they started, they started uh, implementing controls. Yeah. So, that's did they, r- did they take notes from this guy? Uh, do well, what he did, or don't jump off a cliff. Number one, <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't do too much better. Yeah, I mean they were launching this thing off rails, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess I can't, I can't answer that. I'm, my assumption is that, uh, I mean, in, in the scientific uh, entrepreneurial uh, inventor community, yeah, I mean, word's going to spread around for sure, yeah. and you know, the auto. Otto was uh, he was playing around in his gliders in 1896, so you know, a good good decade before. So they likely they likely had knowledge. Uh, in in the very least, I mean, we know Wilbur. He was uh, Wilbur is really the one. I'm not going to say he deserves most of the credit. They both had their parts, but Wilbur did a lot more of the research into how to how to build an aircraft. He went through this phase where he was really depressed, so he sat around reading a lot of books on what we didn't know about aircraft at the time and and birds. And that's oh, wow. that that was important. Reading huh. about birds, how how their wings work, how there's just subtle movements in bird wings, and that's that's how they fly around. Right. And Wilbur was like, oh, so we just need to be able to control the wings like yeah how the air is running against him and then we can turn this thing and so that's eventually what happened so i don't know if you can answer this this is uh related but um um blimps like hmm. like the hindenburg yeah was that before this was was that invented before because i guess wouldn't that be considered controlled flight well that that's a good question. I I didn't even consider looking up blimps. Uh, that's just what I. That's, that's like the first thing that came to mind. I wasn't sure. Did My, blimps happen. So he, <laughs> good when ones did looking it up now. <laughs> I'm I'm so I'm. Here's my thing. I'm going to uh, kind of make up an answer right now. Yeah. I I would. But I would but assume be lighter than aircraft. Exactly. Okay, I, okay. I'm assuming that's what a blimp would be considered. Because they were filled with helium, high hydrogen, hydrogen, hydrogen. Yeah. The first yeah. Zeppelin airship was designed by Ferdinand Graf von Zeppelin. What a cool a retired, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a retired yeah, German army officer. This is Germans <laughs> and made its initial flight from a floating hangar on Lake Constance near Friedrichshafen, Germany. Frederick Schaffen. Frederick Schaffen, Germany. <laughs> on July 2nd, 1900. Okay. So. Okay. So blimps were invented before planes. Yeah. Which, I mean, I mean it's, it's just, it's a hot air balloon, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Like a controlled hot air balloon. Right. Yeah. Until it 
burst into flames. And <laughs> Have you guys ever read about the Hindenburg real quick? Not, not, Hin- no, not really. The Hindenburg I mean, was like one of no, the I was biggest. Quite slow at it. It was like, <laughs> it was like one of the biggest disasters ever because mm. it was like, it was the, well, yeah. I think it was the biggest blimp ever created. And it was like, it might have been during World War One. And it when it came down, it like the explosion was fucking massive because it was <laughs> filled it was with hydrogen. hydrogen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that yeah. that fire burned well. Yeah, it killed a lot of people. Yeah, but um, that's Led Zeppelin's like first album cover. Yeah, yeah, the Hindenburg crashing. Yeah. 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 All right, so it was oh. a Led Zeppelin. That's what Wow. No, well, not because of Hindenburg, but somebody yeah, yeah, made yeah. a comment about how the project that he heard about Jimmy Page being in cahoots with these other people, he was like, oh, that's going to flop like a lead balloon or a lead Zeppelin or something. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Oh. So Jimmy Page was like, yeah. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> yeah. As a matter of you fact, I'm going to steal that name like I stole 30 other riffs. Okay, so that 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 may be a podcast for another day. I'm gonna I'm gonna steer us back on course here. Yeah, it's aircraft. Uh, anyway, anyway. All right. Don't let's let's just save it for you guys. Fight after this. Okay. Let's at least have the brats before. Well. All right. So we're back to time hopping. So again, Wright Flyer three. This is 1905. Uh, and that was that was when they flew this thing around for 39 minutes. They're steering it around. It's also the year that Las Vegas was founded as a city. So this kind of goes back you, to our. Uh, <laughs> I can't say that. We'll probably get bumped off, <laughs> off <of> YouTube. <laughs> but so of course this is uh, this is important to uh, kind of the location of Groom Lake because there's a mine up by Groom Lake. Railroads start getting. Uh, created and there's a lot more habitation going on in this in this part of Nevada and Las Vegas. This is what a roughly roughly a hundred miles. You know, if we go road miles, it's longer. If it's air miles, it's roughly a hundred miles south of the Groom Mine Groom Groom Lake area. So now here now we're coming back to aircraft history. Um, so keep in mind 19, 1903 we have. Well, technically 1904, we have our first controlled aircraft. 1910, patent for a jet engine. What? 1910. So, what? So this is, you know, this is a time when technology adv- is advancing extremely rapidly. Now, how, it's, Okay, but how? <laughs> dude, seven years. Really? Six, <laughs> six years. Yeah. Six years. So, oh my likely. God. The, so here's the thing. So like, okay, just go I, into I, it. <laughs> I didn't do jump into conspiracies real quick. I didn't. Uh, no, that's fine. Uh, let me just say this part real quick. So we know the patent was filed for the jet engine in 1910, meaning that likely people were trying to figure this out. This patent was this was filed by Romanian inventor uh, Henry Coanda. Um, this is the last time we're ever going to talk about him in the podcast, by the way. But, <laughs> but still, I mean, interesting. This is wow. a jet propulsion system in 1910. They didn't even did. Did they have a rudder or uh, uh, the? This the is this is just the engine. This, this, this isn't a. Uh, this is just, yeah, this would just yeah. be like a drawing. Was propeller engines were those mm-hmm. a thing? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, so, okay. Between 
1903 to 1910, they developed so rapidly that they were figuring out jet propulsion technology. Yeah, yeah. that I mean, is they're, they're figuring out hey, to me, man. That oh, is, let's use that the make sense. The, yeah, I mean that's basically just oh well, we're going to use the exhaust from this combustion engine and we're going to blow it into this turbine. I mean, it's essentially what a jet is. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I guess that makes sense. But, like, still, that is... Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, when you consider it, this is 1910. I mean... That's insane. Like, so, we, uh, I'm jumping ahead, uh, but just real quick, I don't know if you have this information on hand. Maybe we could get it before we do part two. Um, sure. <clears throat> when was the first jet plane invented or successfully done? Because I know they were, they weren't, they, they, there was a lot of failures involved in that. There were. So I did, I did focus mainly on, uh, military aircraft because that's where we see a lot of advancement in, in technology. Right, right. Well, that's so, where most, I mean, it, they're going to figure out things for themselves first and then they'll give it to the public. You know, they, they got to get things dialed in for themselves and then they'll have, they'll, let people know what's going on pretty much but on on that note it's not as though it's the military specifically that's developing a lot of, it's it's basically civilian companies that the military's contract okay, okay. to do yeah. to do at least in the US's case i can't okay. really speak on you know once we're going to get into world war 1 world war 2 korean war a little bit but and i focus mainly just on on us aircraft right. um, well you know what now that i think about that like, like between 1903 and when did the when did World War One start? 1911. Uh, hold on. Or was it? Like 14. Where, was it 1914? That's, that's we're gonna get there. Say. Yeah, June 28th, 1914. Okay, so yeah, World War One begins. Okay, so because I know in World War One, like dogfights were like one, like that was the beginning of dogfights. It was um, in. With those it's, like it's, weird it's, German planes with the three stacked wings, you know what I'm talking about? I do those. Uh, I, you know, I just I cherry picked a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of planes, especially through military yeah. history. So I I did a lot of cherry picking. Uh, yeah. That one I didn't look. I didn't look at that one. I'm just I'm just saying. You, but, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, though, right? yeah. yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of lot of a lot of interesting aircraft. Mm -hmm. So, all right now. Back on track here. So jet propulsion uh, patent filed 1910. 1912, Allen and Malcolm Lougheed, they begin the Alco Hydra Aeroplane Company in San Francisco. And they were building uh, aircraft basically just to give tours around California. Oh, okay. So again, you know... Even just though to this, see the land and... Pretty much. But everything. but this is... This, this in itself, this is... Again... We, well, this is kind of revolutionary. Seven, seven, yeah, I mean, seven years prior, yeah, these uh, other two brothers, I mean, Alan and Malcolm must have been burning. They're like, oh, those guys, they stole the fame. <laughs> yeah, we we got to do something better. We're gonna yeah. give people tours of beautiful California. Well, that would, would that be considered first the first like public implementation mm. of flight? Commercial flight, commercial flight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have been. I, I can't answer that. I mean, I guess that. I mean, that makes sense. A, a very early one, in yeah, the very yeah, least. That, makes, uh, that would make sense. Perhaps technically, the hot air balloon would have been the first commercial. Uh, well, flights, yeah, I, but, mean, I guess so. But, but like of, plane wise, of the uh, they all heavier than air aircraft. They all heavier <laughs> than air aircraft. <laughs> 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 
Come on down to Southern California. See <laughs> <laughs> the sunset scare, from the sky. We'll scare the shit out of you from the air. <laughs> Did they fly? We don't know. We're just two knucklehead brothers. Give us some money and we'll find out. We're just two knucklehead brothers that saw fame and other people, so we're going to take their idea and run with it. <laughs> <laughs> You're so good at that voice. Yeah. Hey, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> see, see. Yeah, yeah, she. Gotta come out now. All right. So now we jump ahead to June 28th, 1914. And I'm I'm sorry if we dip a little too much into war history. I just I love war history so much. So we're gonna have snippets. June 28th, 1914. Gavrilo Princip assassinated an Austro-Hungarian heir, Archduke. Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo. Hey, that's a Is band. That got that band? That's hey. a band, yeah. yeah. Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> yeah. Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> so this kicks off World War One. Uh, yeah, I can't sing that song either because we'll get bumped off YouTube. Guidelines. You, you got nine seconds. Nine seconds? I think that's a cutoff. Never mind. Hold on. Stop. Stop. It's over. So. Like you were saying, uh, uh, this is this is when we start seeing war, uh, Warcraft aircraft used in war. So initially, okay. initially they're just reconnaissance because uh, they don't have much. But of course, okay, of course, military. Well, unfortunately, they're developing things to kill people. So the British, yeah. they're trying to figure out how to get guns on these airplanes. <laughs> it's kind of funny that they were just like stacking like 50 cows on these <laughs> like wooden airplanes, these big ass machine guns. They weren't, uh, they didn't use 50 cows on, on these. Uh, what they use? Yet. Uh, 303s. I can't remember what the Germans used. Hmm. I don't, I don't believe they were up to 50 cows yet on the airplanes. Well, the, the, the 50 cal was, when was that invented? Like the, 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 you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, d- I don't yeah. know. Because it was pretty early on. I, I knew it, it was really Yeah, early. I mean, a 50 cal has been around for a long time. I just, I don't know. But like, you know what I'm talking about? The one that's like, that they used heavily in World War Two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That mm-hmm. they put on tanks and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I, I know. What in is the, the name of that one? The Browning 50 cal? Browning 50 cal. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, but when, when that was made, I'm not sure, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so... 1912 British, they're trying to poke around. How do we get a machine gun on a plane? And they come up, we come up with the Vickers Fighting Biplane (laughs) 5, also known as the Gun Bus. So this is kind of an interesting setup. This is a biplane, meaning that there's there's two wings uh, stacked on top. So it's it's a it's an unusual aircraft. It looks like one of the it looks like one of the Wright brothers aircrafts, except we have two seats in this thing. There's a propeller on the back, and there's a gun up in the front. So yeah, aircraft were used in World War One, but just mixed success with it. The again the gunner he's sitting up in front, but the way they have the gun mounted, <laughs> aiming's be, he's gonna be like. Holding the, steer, the, the steering wheel he's or whatever like, to the plane. He's like, he's got like marionetted up. He's <laughs> having the gun. He's like pulling strings. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Like so they're taunting the enemy by putting a bullseye on this plane. It's like, right. Yeah. Have to hit this. <laughs> <laughs> they were a little cheeky back then. Uh, but this, uh, this would have been the first aircraft used specifically for air to air combat. 
So July 1915, we see the Germans. They come up with the Fokker EI. Now, <laughs> so, <laughs> so now when we're looking back at the Vickers, the propellers in the back, and we have a gun up front. So here's one of these important advancements in aircraft technology because oh, I just saw that that the propellers in the back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a so, mid-engine plane. So, And this is a two-seater. Huh. So you have the pilot sitting back here, and you have the gunner sitting up front. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the Germans, this is the Fokker EI. So, Germans. So they perfected the synchronization gear. So if, uh, if for people interested looking at the picture, look up the Fokker EI. But this is the... Uh, this is the first plane that we have a gun mounted behind the propeller and the synchronization gear. You know, if you think about it, if you're trying to shoot a gun from behind a propeller, there's probably going to be issues. You're probably going to be hitting. <laughs> you're probably going to be hitting the propeller, and you're going to have problems mid-flight. <laughs> yeah. And they're aware of this. They they, they don't just uh, slap a gun on there and uh, behind their propeller and sit it up in the air. They know that that could be a problem. So they come up with this gear that the gun is only able to f uh, fire at the precise time to where the bullet can pass through the propellers. Germans, man. This is 1915. The Germans. 1905, we have a couple brothers barely getting an aircraft off the ground. And 10 years later, we're getting the aircraft off the ground a lot easier. And... <laughs> We have a gun. We have a gun behind the propeller using a gear to where the bullets can be fired and not hit the propeller while Jeez. the gun's mounted behind the propeller. So yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. Unfortunate it had to be a tool of war, but yeah. amazing that they can figure this out, uh, you know, taking into mind the velocity of the bullet, the speed of the propeller. I mean, can I say something real quick? Sure. Can you believe <clears throat> how it, it what? It, it, something that's astounding to me is the how much technology will advance during times of war. Absolutely, I mean, in 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 you know subtle slow times, technology does not advance that fast. Mm -hmm. There's that's, there's that's just that's something I wanted to point out. I, I'm it's not I don't think that's the case anymore because like tech companies and everything like that. I now, can't but. remember where this adage came from and I can't remember the precise wording of it, but there there is a saying that essentially says a country will go where it mili where its military goes. Oh, of course. I and mean, look at the I mean, uh, this is just a big sidetrack right here, but like look at the look at the US military's spending. Mm -hmm. It's I mean, it's it's over a trillion now, isn't it? Trillion dollars a I, year? I don't I don't know. That's I mean, it's, the military budget. It's 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 it not has, a small budget. No, it's it's the big the most in the and world. And that's what we know. There's a black budget. So there's money we don't know. Oh, of course. Oh, you yeah. know, we can assume yeah. a chunk of that's going to the military. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean it's I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. And just and maybe that can be a podcast just real briefly. Um Things such as clean-shaven faces, that was a product of war. Wristwatches were a product of war. Microwave. Clean-shaven faces? Okay, so we're going to try to make this brief. So, <laughs> so World War oh, One. We're an hour in. It's okay. So, World War One. we see a lot of use of gas. And that's not, that's, you know, don't breathe the gas because you will die. <laughs> yeah. So, gas masks, those are a thing. You need to have a good seal on your face. Oh. If you have facial hair, you're not going to get a good seal and you're going to die. Oh, so I you shave your face, you that. get a good seal. You're good. You come home from the war. 
and your <laughs> wife, who's been dealing with baloney for the first five years of her marriage, uh, has her husband come home looking like a you know a delicious sausage because he's kind of a new man. Oh man, that's sexy. So that's quite, that's why a clean shaven look was popular for a while. Really? Uh huh. Huh. Yep. Wow. But we're not in the trenches anymore, and beards are in. Oh man. Okay. So. <laughs> We'll uh, we'll see if we can speed things up a little bit since we are an hour in, but we're we're gonna take as long as we need as well. So we told you, we did, we did. I think we did. I can't remember yeah, for an hour ago, but okay. So nineteen sixteen, we go back to Alan and Malcolm Lowheed. So they changed the name. Sorry, I bumped the mic. Uh, Lowheed sounds oddly close to Lockheed. Mm-hmm. A little premonition going on. So Alco Hydro Aeroplane Company is renamed to the Lowheed Aircraft Manufacturing Company. They relocate to Santa Barbara, and they begin work on the Lowheed F-1 flying boat, and this is going to be used in their sightseeing business. Now, World War I, this had begun back in uh, 1914. So the year is 1917. And April 2nd, 1917, President Woodrow Woodrow Wilson called for war on Germany after the sinking of seven U.S. merchant ships. Congress declared war four days later because the president can't declare war. Congress has to declare war. And Alan Lowheed, he sees an opportunity. Oh, we got this new plane and man, the military, they probably want to use that. So he approaches the Navy and he's like, hey, yeah, we're making this uh, we're making this flying boat. And yeah, you probably you guys probably want to use it. The Navy says no. <laughs> and <laughs> Alan's. Kind of feeling, kind of feeling dejected now. For maybe he negotiated. Maybe the Navy felt bad for him. Probably not. But they did agree to test it out at least. So uh, March 29th, nineteen eighteen. So almost a year after he approaches the Navy, the Navy <laughs> starts testing it out. And after after the Navy tests it out, it gets returned to the Lowheed brothers, and they're not going to use it. And mm. Alan's like, well, let's convert this thing to more like an air-based land, uh, aircraft. And here's a picture of it. Um, so they convert it to land-based use. And they're like, okay, well, maybe maybe the, the Army, maybe they'll be interested in it. And by this time, World War I, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's winding down. Uh, November 11th, 1918, World War I ends. So mm, no use of the uh, flying boat. Uh, fun fact. Well, not a fun fact, but uh, here's a fact. Uh, including deaths and injuries, there were about 40 million casualties during World War One. <laughs> How fun! Which didn't even compare to world, what would happen in World War Two, which is insane. It didn't, but just brief sidetrack. If I, I encourage anyone to listen to Dan Carlin's podcast on World War One. It's Dan mm-hmm. Carlin's Blueprints of Armageddon. It's a very long listen. It's around 16 hours, maybe longer. Jesus. But I had never really understood World War One, and he, he paints he paints a picture. And, you know, there's a lot of brutality in World War Two, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of trench warfare. In World War One. we're seeing this transition between between uh fighting on horses pretty much yeah yeah Yeah. i mean it's it's kind of this is the transition into modern warfare so Mm -hmm. we still have this idea of these mass charges Mm -hmm. and machine guns were a thing at this time yeah and it was basically if you were if you were pulled into the military 
you're probably going to die. That's so insane. And if you're not going to so die, scary. could you imagine in artillery technology that had advanced quite a bit? Yeah. And if you're not going to die, you're going to sit in the trenches for days with constant, constant explosions going on. That's where we get the term shell shock. Yeah. World War One, World War Two were definitely brutal, but in ways, for me, World War One is kind of more fucked up, in a way. Yeah, I. I mean, yeah, but you, I mean, you can't, I'm not downplaying the Holocaust. I'm not downplaying. Say, you can't, you can't not, take out of consideration. No, no, not that. at all. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily. It's just, here's the thing. We just, we have all these military generals, uh, military commanders that they're just stuck in the old way of thinking and they're mm. just stubborn and right. they just keep sending people forward let's do these they do care but it's just their way of thinking because these have been generals in older wars where yeah we do these charges this is how we do this -hmm. is how we war but the machine gun man yeah and uh, the artillery i mean god that's what did it god i mean it's just basically being a soldier at that time Mm -hmm. you're going to die so insane dude all right let's 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 Hone back in on this. Sure. Okay, so we're at the end of World War One, And well, let me scroll up here. Okay, so we're in the 1920s. So mining in the area around Groom Mine, uh, well, Las Vegas area, the, the Nevada area, it starts stalling uh, because there's railroads closing down, and that's going to be a problem moving your, your product around. So mining, mining starts stalling out. Also, due to the war, there there were a lot of aircraft made during the war for the war. And after the war, these start flooding the civilian market. So, unfortunately, the low-heat aircraft manufacturing company ends because there's just no business for them anymore. So, kind of, kind of a sad time. Uh, that that was 1920 when they ended. Now, Alan Lougheed, he didn't want to, he didn't necessarily want to give up the aircraft business. So in 1926, Alan Lougheed, John Northrop, Kenneth Kay, and Fred Keeler formed the Lockheed Aircraft Company in Hollywood, California. A year later, oh, a year I later, didn't know that. yeah. Really cool. So yeah, kind of, yeah. You called it. I did. You premonitioned that. I did, and I didn't even know. So a year later, they developed the Lockheed Aircraft Company. They developed the Vega. That's a six-passenger monoplane. And a monoplane, that's that's just what we usually see. We see an aircraft with one wing. When we say biplane, that's that's the, when there's stacked wings. And yeah. then triplanes, pretty rare, but you see them. But that's general. Uh, uh, that's, that's how it works. So <laughs> anyway... Um, Couple famous pilots that flew the Vega, Amelia Earhart. She was uh, she did that. Uh, she was the first female. The uh, transcontinental flight, right? Yep, yep. She did that, and then she did that solo. So, yeah, women in history, awesome and stuff. She disappeared into the Bermuda. Trail. No, this is later. She didn't do that in the Vega. No, I know. I'm just saying that's well, more premonition, man. You, you know your aircraft See, history. Man. <laughs> Um, another famous pilot uh, using the Vega, uh, Wiley Post. He used the Vega to prove the existence of the jet stream. Uh, you know, they they weren't sure if there's this oh, okay. the, if there's this uh, mass air current up in the air, this the river river of air. Uh, yeah. But 
he was pretty sure. Other people were pretty sure. He gets up there and yeah, figures it out. There's some turbulent air up here. Dang. So, 19, uh, 1927, that's when that happened. March 1928, Lockheed is re- relocated to Burbank, California. Burbank, Bank, California. By, by, the, by, the, <laughs> by the years in, the company had made over $1 million at the time, which adjusted for inflation was about $15 million. June 11th, 1928, uh, Fritz von Opel, he's a fun guy. He was a rocket enthusiast. So this guy, he, uh, oh, I forgot. Yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot to be scrolling through pictures. Here's a, here's a picture of Amelia Earhart by her Vega. Okay. That picture colored though, looks incredible. I know. Oh, but dude, I love looking at all these black and white photos that are colorized. I mean, it's just so incredible. It It just, it's just one of my favorite things. Really different. Yeah. It just, it it changes everything. It does. I thought the world was black. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it was, it was colorful as hell. But uh, the, the whole world was black and white until People 1956. Technicolor. They got technicolor eyes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, we got a little bit out of order. Okay, so here's a picture of our boy Fritz von Opel. He's he's uh, he's Mr. Rocket enthusiast. So one of the things he liked putting he liked putting rockets on cars. So what's special about this car, sir? I put twenty rockets on this baby. I don't know. I put twenty rockets on this some bitch. Twenty rockets on this Dasi Scoot. I don't know. We're just we're going we're going fast, and we ain't stopping. I got no brakes on this dang thing. We're going. Look at this guy. This is when the neckerchief's like awesome for for your high speed cars. Like you gotta have the neckerchief or scarf, and you gotta have funky glasses. Speed racer. So he uh. So what him and a few of his friends do, uh, they take this, basically a glider, uh, this and this glider, it's called the uh, Le Piche Ente. It's a sailplane. Piche Ente. Or a, a glider, <laughs> it's basically a glider. This is a uh, design and made by Alexander Le Piche. Mm-hmm. But, so anyway, Fritz von Opel, uh, his friend Fritz Stammer, and if few other people they drag one of these things up and up into uh up into the mountains and they strap a couple rocks <laughs> rockets on it <laughs> oh my god so sociopaths jeez so fritz stammer he's chosen as the test pilot and and, and so i mean fritz fritz opal he's the mastermind he must have been on the fritz <laughs> so opal he's he's mastermind <laughs> get out <laughs> We're through here. So he's ma- Opal. He's the mastermind between these rocket-powered things. Stammer. He had been uh, he'd been the test pilot for the car. So now he's gonna be the test pilot for the Lepichente. This dude's got balls, man. <laughs> That's insane. Hold on, hold on. Oh, so boy. they do te- two test flights. So the way they have these rockets set up, it's one. There's two rockets. So one uh-huh. rocket's gonna fire, and as it's running out of fuel, the second rocket's gonna fire. So they're trying to keep this thing up in the air. Jeez. First test. It works great. No problem. So the second test, wow. old Fritz Stammer, he's up there. Power on the rocket. Explosion happens. Did you hear something pop in the something background? Yeah, yeah, I did. That was, that was weird. Anyway, so one of the rockets explodes, and I can't imagine what's going through his his head at this time, but a rocket explodes. Are the, okay, I'm are thinking, the rockets placed behind him? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So dude. they're behind him. This uh, the rockets. One of the rockets explodes, 
and he's just either has balls of steel and is just like, oh, no problem, or his fear controls him in a very positive way to where he hears explosion, <gasps> looks behind him, looks back, and just concentrates like a motherfucker. He, he ends up landing this, and he gets what? out, he runs off, and the thing burns to the ground, and there's nothing left. <laughs> oh my god this dude's a savage please <laughs> man what happened <laughs> yeah he's just so stressed Where out the memories didn't form <laughs> and next thing he knows he's just standing out in the field ah, 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 <laughs> oh my what god what did you guys do to my plane <laughs> who touched my plane <laughs> <laughs> blackout monster man he's <laughs> killing it <laughs> all right so let's let's hop back over to nevada for just a brief moment here I so <laughs> and he chose <laughs> so he, he chose both <laughs> he fought that flight and lived <laughs> oh my god all right so hopping back to las vegas briefly 1929 uh we start we start seeing development of airfields in this area from the army air corps now at this time there's no air force it's all any kind of aeronautical military activity that's under the army still at this point okay that's yeah. not going to be so towards the air force hasn't even been formed at this point yeah still we technically did have an air force but it's under the army okay. so there wasn't a name for it. It was just in the army. Uh, army, army air corps. Okay, that was that was the name. But, oh, okay. Um. So, so around Las Vegas, we start seeing these army airfields being made. July nineteen twenty nine, majority shareholder of Lockheed, Fred Keeler. So remember, he's one of the founding founding people of the Lockheed Company. Right. Uh, he decides that it's a good idea to share. Uh, share sell his share of the company, which is very large, eighty-seven percent. He sells it to the Detroit Aircraft Corporation. So this is oh, when the geez. this is when the Great Depression is kicking in, yeah. and he sells it to this <laughs> this Detroit company. When, when did the stock market crash in twenty nine or twenty eight? Uh, well, shoot. I mean, maybe that would have been good for me to know. I don't know, <laughs> but Great Depression sitting in in nineteen twenty nine. Right. I do know that. Yeah. So. It might have, I think it was 29. So at this time, basically, everyone's poor. Uh, we don't really have expendable income to be flying around or anything. So the Detroit Aircraft Corporation, it goes under. It's bankrupt in 19, uh, late 1929. Um, Alan Lowe, you know, due to the sale of, of uh, <laughs> basically his, the, one of the, the company he was a founder of uh, and practically named after him, he resigned in August 1929. He's just like, yeah, well, fuck this. Now this this kind of this gets sad. So we're gonna jump ahead three years. So 1932, we have a group of investors that they they want to buy the Detroit Aircraft Corporation out of technically it, it basically bankruptcy. The technical term is receivership. I just uh, that's what I read. I tried to understand receivership. I mean, it has something to do with bankruptcy. So we're just going to say that this group of, of, of investors bought Lockheed out of bankruptcy. Technically, I'm not correct, but we're just going to go with that. Um, 
Here's the sad thing. So Alan, who had resigned from the company, he raises $50,000, which uh, adjusted for inflation, that would equate to about $936,000. So he's wanted... 1932. Yeah, 1932. So yeah, $50,000. He raises that to buy back the company, but he didn't think that was going to be enough to buy that buy the company back so he didn't even put a bid in and the sad thing is the investors they bought the company for forty thousand dollars so, oh so he could have had his company back um drop the ball yeah he did, did. find that out i wonder oh yeah of course he did and um and this he is, killed himself <laughs> well oh. I, I don't know this is where our uh we we part ways with alan lowheat at this point um mm. just Kind of sad. Well, so. let's say goodbye. Let's take a second. Let's say goodbye to Alan Lowheed. Goodbye, Alan Lowheed. Thank you for planting the seeds for a company that's going to make some really fucking sweet we aircraft. We're pouring one out for the homies tonight. Well, <laughs> no, no. It's not poured out. I'll drink it. But I'm going to pour it out on the carpet. My belly. The carpet's my belly. August 1932. <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Henry H. Arnold began acquiring land near Murak Dry Lake in Southern California. This is going to be used as a gunnery and bombing range. Uh, so I'll show you my gunnery and bombing <laughs> range. I don't want to see it. It's tore up. It's tore up from the kidney stone. I don't want to look at it. But so this is another dry lake, just like Groom Lake. This is another. This is another dry lake bed. So very flat. And right. so of course this this lieutenant colonel. He shows up out there and he's like, oh, this is, we don't have to really work the land for an airfield out here. So let's have an airfield out here. Mm-hmm. This is, we're going to come back to Murak. This is kind of the, uh, this is the end of it for now. We'll come back. Murak's coming back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 1933. Our boy. Clarence uh, <laughs> Kelly Johnson. He is hired at the Lockheed aircraft corporation as a tool designer so basically this guy's a big ass nerd yeah dork Uh uh-huh loser probably got bullied in high school maybe i would have definitely bullied him in high school would you i'm already sick of him High school must have been a different thing back then. I, I don't know how bullies were taken care of back then. I think he just went out back. The teacher is like, yeah, just take it outside and come back in. Like, settle it, come back in. I don't know. I don't know. Go figure it out. Or the teacher just beat them until they behaved. Who knows? Things were different back then. So That's when men were real men. <laughs> so... Uh, so he's a tool designer. Sorry for bumping the mic. Uh, he's a tool designer, but he, he, no. Okay, let's be honest. He's a tool. Well, designer. I mean, well, he does become a Whoa. designer later on, and he's used as a tool, so to speak. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> I see. I see. I'd show my tool. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Oops. I bumped the mic. Anyway. So. Um, He's a tool designer, but he does end up doing some work on what's called the Model 10. This becomes the Electra. Um, here, let me change the picture for you guys. Show my Electra. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Oh, no. Oh, I misplaced the Electra picture. But anyway, so the Electra, this is the plane that Amelia Earhart flew and disappeared in. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Zapped out by aliens in the Bermuda Triangle while Bigfoot watched. Was it was it the Bigfoot that did it. Yeah, well, he controlled I thought it was the Sasquatch. aliens. 
<laughs> no, it wasn't Bigfoot. It was Sasquatch. Whoa! <laughs> That's a, sassy. <laughs> Dexter's lab. Mm-hmm. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> I love you, sassy. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> so Clarence Kelly Johnson, he starts working at Lockheed in 1933. Let's uh, step up four years. February 1937, Lockheed, specifically Clarence Johnson, he designs the P-38 Lightning. So this is one of the more popular aircraft that we see in that's in, uh, it right there. Okay. yeah this is the p38 lightning so this is a this is a dual boom plane this is a there's there's two propellers on it um look it up if you want to see a picture of it it's it's pretty neat looking this is one of the more popular aircraft it was i mean it it uh, there was a lot of success and there was a lot of ace pilots who flew this but specifically in the german theater it it struggled in the Japanese theater or the Pacific theater. It did pretty well over there. Uh, but the Germans, they had pretty good aircraft. And so mixed, mixed results in what was the, name uh, in the of German the, theater. Do you know the names of the, uh, the aircraft that the Germans used in dub dub two? Um, <laughs> you know, I had, uh, cause I know, I know the, uh, I know the Japanese had, uh, the zeros. Yeah, and you know, again, i i didn't fo- i I didn't look too much into the yeah. uh, other countries' aircrafts. Yeah, the Japanese they well, had I the, mean, uh, they had the podcast about Area Fifty One, so that's that's probably why. Well, there's <laughs> that. I mean, you don't understand. I was having a blast looking up all this, yeah. um, but one of their 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 more popular the Germans their more popular aircraft included the Focke-Wulf FW One Ninety and the Messerschmitt BF One Hundred Nine. Probably why I don't know any of it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. The F uh, FW one ninety they used a BMW engine. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Well, I know I, Volks Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, I mean, they supplied the vehicles for the German military, right? Uh, well, so I know. I don't know. I know Hitler drove a Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing too good for Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, we have this, uh, we have the P-38, 1937. So what this was used for... Was this the frontrunner for the P-52? Or what, what was the big one that the American u- Americans used in World War II? Was the P-52, was the P-51, P-50, P-53, P-54... Um, there was a, there was a lot of aircraft used. This this was one of the big ones. Um, it, you're probably thinking of the P fifty one Mustang. That's what I'm thinking of. P fifty one Mustang. Yeah, that was uh, that had a lot more success in the German theater. It was yeah, of course yeah. used a lot in the Pacific theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the P thirty eight against the uh, German aircraft. I mean, it did it did okay, mm-hmm. but. There were better aircraft suited for that. This aircraft, it was it was kind of a multi-purpose aircraft. It was it was used for bombing. It was used for reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some air-to-air combat, but so it was kind of a jack of all trades. It was still a cool aircraft. Yeah, and was, again, was there was solid. we had uh, I don't know there was like three or four. Uh, I do have a couple names written down. All of the crazy innovation back then is just, it's so cool to watch and look at. Uh, Unfortunately, my handwriting, uh, I was writing quick. Uh, Richard, 
I can't read the last name because my handwriting <laughs> sucks. No, you're not going to be able to read it. Well, it looks like it looks like Richard Bong, and I don't think that's right. But <laughs> he, uh, he he accrued uh, he accrued forty kills. He he accrued uh, he was the top ace in the uh, U.S. during World War II. He accrued forty kills in the P-38. Jesus. Yeah, pretty pretty good. So Gosh. in in this in this thing here. Now keep in mind, you know, this is bad mother. This this is looking like a modern aircraft at this point, and this yeah, is yeah this yeah. this is still the 30s. We're not even we're we're not even in the 40s yet, and this is a pretty modern air, looking aircraft. Mm-hmm. So, oh, but World War II is getting ready to start up. It is getting ready so, to start up. And when did it start? In 1938, with the Germans invading Poland. 39. Okay, 39. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. However. Uh, okay, let's go through a couple more years here. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's February 1937. That's when we start uh, developing uh, developing the P-38 Lightning. 19 uh, Further on in 1937, uh, we're going back to Murak Dry Lake. So again, this is this is out in Cal- Southern California. Uh, so the Army Air Corps they're they're starting to use this area pretty seriously, not just for gunnery and bombing training. Uh, but they, they have a, they're developing a air force, an air force base out there. Um, later years, Miroc's going to be much more important. We're going to skip, we're just going to skim over the information I have written there. It's, it's really not relevant. Uh, 1938. So Kelly Johnson, Clarence Johnson, he's been working at Lockheed for about five years at this point. He's promoted to chief research engineer. So he's climbing the ladder pretty quick here. Later on in 1938, on the other side of the globe. So here's where we're going to kind of detract from the aircraft history in there. Cause I'm just a, I'm a kind of just a war war geek. Uh, not a good one, but war geek. So on the other side of the globe, we see German chemist Otto Hahn and his assistant Fritz Strassmann and Austrian Swedish physicist, Lisa Mietner. They discovered nuclear fission through experiments on uranium so that is insane man can you that's just like like i said earlier man the innovation and the all of the inventions all of the ideas that these guys had it's it's so cool to look at it it oh yeah yeah that, i mean this is this is uh yeah right it's, yeah, yeah it's, how did these guys where, go where does it come from yeah how did how are these guys figuring out aliens the aliens <laughs> told them it is the aliens <laughs> they told them <laughs> But uh, so okay, they discover nuclear fission, uh, and they they put out three publications of the research, and uh, there's there's publications coming out December of 1938, and the last publication coming out on the uh, February 11th, 1939. Well, that's because they didn't want anybody <laughs> taking all their ideas after that. No, 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 no. So, I mean, the scientific community, I mean, they're, they, they want to share this information. They, they mm. share it with other physicists. So that, that's why they're putting mm. these publications out. Oh, okay. I mean, basically, as soon as they discover this, they're like, oh, we need to get these other physicists in, on board so they can because look into it. these are great it. discoveries of mankind. So at the time, I mean, yeah, because, I mean, the you know, nuclear fission, we're splitting atoms and there's so much energy released. And yeah. what's the potential for this energy? My God, we can... If we, if we learn how to use this, we can have power plants and the, the amount of energy. Cities, yeah. yeah. So yeah. they release these publications and the science community, they look at it. And, and it's not as though these, it's not as though Otto and, and Fritz and, and uh, Lisa, they, 
they they they're aware of the implications of this. They know okay, there's a lot of energy released, but the science community in general, they look at it and they they say this can be weaponized. This could be used to do a lot of bad, and so. Yeah. Jumping ahead further on in 1939, August 1939, physicist... I was just about to bring up Albert Einstein. I was just about to. <laughs> so in August 1939, physicist Leo... Uh, forgive me. Uh, Leo's... Zillard. Z- okay. Yeah, that sounds good. So we'll go with that. Leo, you say it? Zillard. Edward Teller and... He's Eugene, nice. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and Eugene Wigner. They encourage Albert Einstein to send a letter to Franklin D. Roosevelt warning the United States of the potential threat because this research on... This is done in Germany. Right. The, figuring out nuclear fission. So this is in the hands of, of uh, an increasingly belligerent Germany. Yeah. So... They, 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 they need this celebrity scientist. They need, we need to send this letter out. This letter has got to have a lot of weight behind it. Let's get Albert Einstein. Because at on this, this point, Albert Einstein is an extreme yeah. celebrity <laughs> yeah. throughout the world. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in the letter, it stated that a bomb delivered by ship could theoretically destroy an entire Harbor in much of the surrounding countryside. Basically the, and the letter is warning that, and the letter is urging the United States to get on top of the research of uranium. You need to be basically saying you need to beat the Germans to this technology. Otherwise, you need to figure this out because they're going to destroy the world. Yeah. yeah. So, so this letter doesn't get sent out for a little while. So this was this was in August 1939. September 1st, 1939, Germany invades Poland. So this kicks off World War II. Now, a little bit of leading up to World War II, sorry, uh, Warnerd, but there is this thing of appeasement going on. And Mm -hmm. basically, Hitler, before World War I starts, he's saying, well, uh, I I want this chunk of land. And, you know, keep in mind, Germany was a major, they were basically the biggest aggressor in World War One, mm-hmm. And there was uh, the Treaty of Versailles that saw a lot of uh, uh, suppression of the Germans. And by this point, um, France and Britain, they're kind of like, well, we've punished you enough, so okay, you want to take over this territory? Okay, fine, we're not, we'll kind of look the other way. Germany's happy, happy for a while, and then Germany, Hitler says, I want this. Hmm. And okay, okay, you can have this. So this keeps going on. This is this is known as appeasement. Like, okay, mm-hmm. just give them what they want, and they'll be happy. Yeah. So finally, you know, after I, I can't remember the last one before Poland, but uh, France and Britain are basically like, okay, well, this is it, and if you do anything else, this is war. September first, nineteen thirty nine, Germany <laughs> invades Poland. <laughs> so, so appeasement didn't work. Yeah. Didn't work. <laughs> October 11th, 1939, Roosevelt receives the letter from the physicist, uh, from Albert Einstein, and he pretty much immediately orders the formation of a scientific committee to oversee and direct the research of uranium. Now, was this the creation of the Manhattan Project? We're getting there. We're getting there. 1940s. The United States Army Air Force begins establishing establishing bases through Southern Nevada. So this is technically not correct. Remember, we go several years prior, and they yeah they're already having a presence, but they're spreading out quite a bit more. Right. 
uh, they set up they set up shop uh, in Las Vegas, and uh, they set up the Indian Springs Army Airfield. That's still a, that's still a base, isn't it? I Indian believe, Springs. Well, I uh, it is, but I believe it goes under the name Creech. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. Okay, so but, I, I've heard of it. I saw it, but I, I but yeah, we'll we'll just say yes for now. I, yeah. You know. Um, that was through the 1940s. 1941, government. So we're going back. We're going back to the Shahans. If you guys remember at the beginning, mm-hmm. beginning of the story, the Shahans start buying buying up mining property. So 1941, we have government officials. They stay with uh, members of the Shahan family around Groom Mine. So what are these government officials doing? Well, a war is ramping up, and they need more space to to test out. Uh, uh, to give their pilots training, gunnery training, bombing training. And this is out in the middle of the desert. Keep, keep that in mind. There's, so there's nothing around. So, of course, government officials, they go up there. They're looking around. They're, they're scoping the place out. Like, well, okay, yeah, there's nothing out here. And the reason for this is because the U.S. is watching the unfolding of World War II from the sidelines. Exactly. And so we're not involved yet. No, no, we're not involved yet. And, well, if we get involved, we need to have these people ready to go to war. Exactly, so. yeah. We need the technology and these people that everyone trained. Right. Ready. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. So the government officials, they're sur- surveying the land. Uh, obviously, the land out there for, for Air Force purposes, well, Army Air Force, Army Air Corps purposes, there's a lot of flat land out there. Uh, we see Indian Springs Auxiliary Field Number 1 established at a salt flat nearby Groom Mine. And... Oh, that was it. I don't know why I say it. But so training starts in this area. And during the aerial training, we start seeing a lot of uh, we start seeing a lot of collateral damage. Uh, I didn't read that there was any deaths, but we do see uh, an outhouse destroyed. We see bunkhouses destroyed. And uh, and after a few years, we see other destruction of mining property. But so, yeah, keep in mind, there's mining operations going on. Uh, Still here. going on. Yeah. And these it, people are. And then the and then the uh, Army Air Corps, they're like. <laughs> they're doing they're strafing conduct- runs with <laughs> yeah. their machine guns. Oh, whoops. Uh, fucked up your uh, fucked up your outhouse. So you're just going to have to shit outside. And, <laughs> yeah. and say, Sorry. We'll, we'll practice shooting at it and clean it up for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Target practice. Pound the shit out of it, huh? Ah. <laughs> uh, December 7th, 1941, Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. Dun, dun, dun. 1942, a new mill is made by Conception Mine. Now, the mill, it's using a, what's known as a gravity and flotation method. So there's water being used here, and I'm not an expert on this, but essentially... Minerals have different densities. They're going to float at different levels in a water column. And so that's how they're separating out these minerals. So, okay. A little bit of mining history for you. The same year, 1942, the Manhattan Project, directed by Major General Leslie Groves of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, began. The project saw the development of nuclear bombs designed by nuclear physicist Robert Oppenheimer. <laughs> Indian Springs Army Airfield. Robert Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer Robert, Schmidt. Robert Oppenheimer, please. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. You're naughty. <laughs> das ist nicht so gut. <laughs> why, okay, but why is when Germans talk... Why is... Oh, I'm squeezing by you. 
Why is it that when Germans talk sexually, it sounds way over the top sexual more than like any other? Because they are very aggressive. Dos heiten. Mm. Like that does that. I, I That's not even a word, but it sounds like I'm going to suck your dick. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Is that the way the Germans talk, or is that the way we talk like we think the Germans talk? Are we sexualizing Germany? Mm. Maybe I'm being I racist. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, boy, we're sexualizing Germany. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, 1942, kind of a dark year with the inception of the Manhattan Project, because things are going to start going downhill. Real quick. Also, we see more expansion of the Indian Springs Army Airfield. We have several auxiliary locations, and again, there had been one made around the Conception Mine at a salt flat near Conception or Groom Mine. Let's see. So, in. No, not Anne. Not Anne. I'm jumping ahead. What's wrong, Davey? So, September 21st, 1942, the ground test of the Bell XP 59 Aero Comet began. Here's a picture of it. Pretty modern looking airplane. This is the, this is a, the first twin jet engine air cor- aircraft developed, developed for, for the, the United, United States, States Army Air Force. Now, <laughs> this didn't this didn't seem use. There were tons of production problems. So we're gonna see later on. Well, we'll just say right now that. It was tested. But it looks very modern it, uh, for it, what it is. It looks inc- yeah, it looks incredibly modern. It's, you know, I mean, it, from this point on, I mean, aircraft don't really get too much different looking than they do today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there again, there's going to be exceptions like the SR-71, the B-2 Spirit, but, and we're going to see some unusual uh, testing a little bit after World War II ends, but... Anyway, so the uh, the United States Army Air Force they they basically they didn't like the P fifty nine, so it it the orders on it got canceled. So we're gonna go back to some Lockheed history. June nineteen forty three. Now we we hear we hear the term uh, skunk works, and what's okay? I have heard of this before. Yes. Yeah, so so skunk works. And I'm going to give a couple different versions of where the nickname came from. I'm going to read through this one first, and then I'm going to try my best from memory where the nickname may have actually come from. But according to Kelly uh, Kelly Johnson, Clarence Kelly Johnson, June 1943, Skunk Works, the nickname for the Lockheed Advanced Development Projects is born. The Air Tactical Service Command expressed need to Lockheed for, an, for a high-altitude aircraft to better combat the German... Uh, Luftwaffe, the Air Force. Clarence Johnson was charged with design and production. His proposal was the XP-80, and that this is what would eventually become the P-80 shooting star. Here's the picture of it. Again, very, very modern looking. And this is a jet. This is a jet aircraft. And this was the first jet fighter used in the Army Air Force. Oh, wow. 1943. And still to me, it, that's just... Before reading all this, I'm thinking it's all prop planes. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I thought. I, I, that's what I thought. I had no clue 
that jet fighters were even a thing. This is I didn't early. think we were getting into jet fighters until uh, the late 60s with the Vietnam War. Yeah. No, no. I mean, this is, again, yeah, we, I mean, we go back to 1910. I mean, I'm still surprised about that. When, that's that's when insane we have a, to me. Yeah. I can't, I, that's crazy. Yeah. I never would have thought. So, so, okay. This is, again, this this uh, June 1943, uh, we say Skunk Works is, is made. Now, the other reason that it, through this story, and this is through the story from Clarence Johnson, this is, this is how he says Skunk Works uh, was born. But as far as the specific name, I read something else that one of the secretaries that would answer the phone. See, where this where this uh, where their facility is located uh, in California, it's not too far away from this plastic manufacturing plant and it stinks. And mm. one of the secretaries, because of the mm. stench that was constantly in the air, he, he started answering the phone. Uh, and I don't know if this is true, but this is a story, right? But he starts answering the phone. Uh, hey, skunk works. Mm. And, and that in itself is a reference to a comic at the time called little Abner and, hmm. and the skunk works was uh, kind of this underground CD CD operation going. But, hmm. um, so that may be where the name came from. That seems more plausible than, you know, just randomly. Oh, well we have this, uh, we have this advanced development projects and we'll just call it skunk works. But yeah. regardless, June, 1943 is when for sure, Regardless of nickname, that is when it. the Lockheed Advanced Development Projects began. October 16th, 1943, the formal contract for the P-80 Shooting Star was delivered. Now, here is the fun part about the Advanced Development Projects, or Skunk Works, because going back to June 1943, we see the Air Tactical Service wanting Lockheed to develop a, an aircraft. But there's no formal contract delivered until, again, October 16th. Well, the way old Clarence Johnson works, you shake his hand, there's no formal contract, but you shake his hand and we're getting to work. Maybe he was on cocaine, I don't know. But, <laughs> but yeah. So, <laughs> so, I don't know, he's like, ah, you want an aircraft? Okay, let's get on it, boys, come on. We don't have the contract yet, but they're going to want to buy the, we have the finest guy, aircraft around. Oh, let's get on it, come on, come on. <laughs> Let's go! <laughs> so October 16th, 1943, that, that formal contract comes in, but you know what? They've already been working on the P-80. And so this we would see that from the, the advanced development projects, this is their standard operating procedure. You don't need the contract. You tell them what they want, they're on it. Your contract can come later. Who cares? You tell them what they want, they're on it. Jesus. So that's where Skunk Works really, really gets popular. You know, this is, hey, if we want something done, we go to Skunk Works. Yeah. Okay, so things are going to turn pretty dark here. So we jump ahead a couple years. July 16th, 1945 at 529 a.m. The first nuclear device is detonated by the United States Army in the Hornado del Muerto desert in New Mexico. This is known as the Trinity Test. This is the first time a nuclear device, a man-made nuclear device, is detonated. And this explosion is so intense that it melts the sand and it fuses this into this green radioactive glass. The crater that was formed from this five feet deep 
That's not too deep, but 30 feet wide. The shockwave from this explosion is felt 100 miles away. People can, keep, people can see the mushroom cloud from 100 miles away. The mushroom cloud's up seven and a half miles up in the air. Let me ask this. Did they know how big the explosion was going to be? They, so they had their calculations. They had their calculations and there was, there was a reason that they were, they were set up quite, uh, quite a ways away. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're feeling it and they're, they're feeling, they're feeling shockwaves from a hundred miles away. I believe they were set up 40 miles away and they felt the wind off of this thing. Uh, don't quote me on the 40 miles, but there's, but they know they are aware that this is going to be an extreme explosion and we need to set up a way. I can imagine being one of the people there and being like, this is the end of the world. Knowing that this is going to be a tool of war. So this is, I mean, it's, it's just bone chilling. And and for me personally, I, I wanted to have the, the date and the exact time. I mean, it, to me, important. it just makes it more chilling. It's important. So this is July 16th. Not even a full month later, August 6th, 1945. At 8.15 Japan local time, the nuclear bomb codenamed Little Boy is dropped on Hiroshima, exploding 1,900 feet above the ground. This was the second nuclear detonation. Ever. 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 Following yeah. following the Trinity oh test. My, I didn't know that. This is the first use of a nuclear weapon in war. We saw it once and we were like, we are going to fuck these guys up. <laughs> so it's crazy, man. In, in the Pacific Theater, we had already had a bombing campaign going against Japan. We're doing we're doing level bombing. That's, you know, yeah. uh, just like carpet bombing. Base. Yeah. yeah, essentially. So we've been doing that. But Hiroshima. This had been spared. Hiroshima had been spared from the American bombing campaign in Japan in order to better study the results of a nuclear device. Nearly everything within That's one mile. That's kind of fucked up. I didn't know that. Yeah, they wanted to see just what it could do. This was a test. That is fucked up. Man. Nearly everything within a one mile radius was completely destroyed. Here's a picture of it right here. Nearly, uh, yeah, we said that already. The fires. The fires from this explosion, this is going on two miles away from the epicenter of the explosion. People near the epicenter, this is gruesome, but perhaps this was a good thing. But they were vaporized. They likely had no fucking clue what happened. They were alive, and they they were were done. No recognition of what is about to hit them. It just... No. Boom. And and that's that's all they knew. That's it. Walking out the door to go to work. So the people near the epicenter, they're vaporized, and they left a shadow where they stood on the ground. That's, that's... Their ashes are burnt into the ground. The ground around them, the flash is so intense that the ground is bleached. And what's left is their shadow. Yep. That is... (laughs) Yeah. It gives me chills, man. That's... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 66,000 were killed, another 69,000 injured. 20,000 of the 66,000 killed were of the Imperial Japanese Army. So that leaves 46,000 innocent yeah, just men, women, and children. 
Yeah, and you know, so we, I mean, we can step back and we can say, you know, that this was a different time and it, of course it was a different time. Of course it was, but, and this is, you know, this, this, this is what helped in World War II. I mean, was this a bad thing? This is the reason we ended. I mean, that's the reason World War II ended. I mean, a, a big reason, for Pretty, sure. Almost it, single-handedly. At, at least in the Pacific Theater, yeah, this is why yeah. it ended. And this is a terrible thing. And I'm not, when I say this, I'm not trying to justify the actions. And I don't know, maybe we're, we're justified. But the Japanese were nearly as bad, maybe even worse than, than Hitler. Yeah, they were. Gruesome. They did. They did awful things. Yeah, horrific. Yeah. Did we need to bomb cities where civilians were living? Well, you know, we don't need to debate, debate this right now. Let's just get back on topic. Right. So, okay. little boy, that was dropped on August 6, nineteen forty-five. Not even a month after the Trinity test back in July sixteenth, August 9th, nineteen forty-five at eleven o two Japan local time. Nuclear bomb codenamed Fat Man became the second and final nuclear device to be utilized in war when it detonated 1,650 feet over Nagasaki, Japan. Up to 40,000 immediately perished, with a Which, fatality count of up to 80,000 from post-detonation effects, including fires and radiation sickness. Which means that as soon as this bomb exploded, 40,000 people, 40, people are gone. Gone gone which so which what what 10, i have thousand more is the city of joplin mm -hmm. just for perspective there yep so um for for those curious uh, i do have a picture of a before and after of uh of nagasaki um you can look it up on google of course you guys know that but that's before and after that's before and after so in the is picture, that a river and yep running through? yeah those are rivers but yeah, we see, you know, definite picture of a city on the right. Uh, I'm sorry, on the left and on the right, we see very flat. Yeah, nothing. Nothing. Almost the roads are nothing like outlines of roads. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. There's a few more aerial photos. Wow. These were obviously two heavily populated cities that were hit, too. Extremely. Yeah. Extremely densely densely populated. So, August 9th, that's when we drop Fat Man. August 14th, we enter an armistice, which is essentially surrender, but there's no formal end of the war. We could consider August 14th the end of the war, war but there was official Japanese surrender on, August, on, August, on September 1945. I'm going to say this is when World War II officially ended with the surrender of the Japanese. Well, because the Germans uh, surrendered earlier in 1945, right? Mm -hmm. It's like May yep. or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Now, kind of dipping back into aircraft uh, history. Prior to the war, the Army Air Force had about 2,500 aircraft. By the war's end, they had about 30,000 aircraft. <laughs> Jeez, that's dude. 300, so I know yeah, that says 300,000. Uh, did I say 30,000? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I am. No. Yeah. 300,000. That's <laughs> insane. <laughs> <My bad>. <laughs> the, real quick. The manufacturing during World War Two is 
insane. Yeah, we literally. I mean, that's what pulled us out of the depression. We we took every resource that we had and put it towards the war. That is, that's just crazy to think about. That's why after the war it was so prosperous because people had made so much money. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, okay, folks, we're almost done. We're almost at the two hour mark. (laughs) This is a long one, man. Yeah. We're we're gonna be wrapping up though. So, okay, September second, nineteen forty five. We see the end of the world uh, World War Two. Now, we could say that this is perhaps at the very end of the of World War II. Perhaps that's when the Cold War began. I'm going to put it more towards the uh, Korean War. It just seems a little more right to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's really no official start. Uh, the Korean conflict was because of tensions between the U.S. and Russia, right? It was so, and, and to expand on that a little bit, some of the some of the uh, it, there was the Sino-Japanese War. That was a war between China and Japan. Mm-hmm. The first one was in the late eighteen hundreds, and then and then leading up to the Second World War, and and bleeding into the Second World War, we see the Second Sino-Japanese War. And, and the Japanese were extremely terrible to the Chinese. They they yeah murdered, raped, burned alive these. Yeah, they. Yeah, it was, that's uh, the Japanese did a lot of fucked up stuff, but so in one sense they they did temporarily liberate uh, what is known as Korea today from the Chinese, but then they did eventually annex Korea, mm-hmm. and you do you do hear a lot of even modern day tension between Korea and Japan because of that, but because they did, yeah, the Japanese were very terrible at at, at, at this point in history, very very brutal. So, February 22nd, 1946. War has been over for a little while. We have one George F. Keenan. And he's, he sent what is known as the Long Telegram from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. In it, he was highly critical of the views of the Soviets. And the Soviets were, were, were going to, just for simplicity, they were practicing communism. We can uh, we can split hairs and say technically not communism, but we're gonna say it's but communism. Why was do we know why he was so critical of? Because when you, when you look at uh, I mean the the way they do the way they were doing things in in uh, the USSR I mean it was very very different than what you would see in the Western countries France uh, France uh, Britain the United States you know very capitalistic democratic societies. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get too too into this. I, I think I, I still would like a very dedicated uh, podcast towards differences between capitalism, socialism, and, and communism. Mm-hmm. They're 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 all very different. Not really what we uh, understand them to be, just from popular knowledge. But communism's just run basic very differently. So so we basically see the state controlling everything, yeah. and uh, the states controlling the means of production, and in a way, um, people, people, people are people just are used suffering. as tool. yeah, mm-hmm. tools. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of suffering, but you know, at the same time, there we can argue there there is good going on too. We we can, but we can save that for another time. So, so this George F. Keenan, he's he's just he's just spooked by he he's spooked by communism. It's just this doesn't seem right. Uh, is this the beginning this, of the Red right. Scare? Yeah. Okay. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. August 1st, 
1946, Congress declared that nuclear energy should be used not only as weapons, but also to improve public welfare. Eisenhower, si- excuse me. Eisenhower signs into law the Atomic Energy Act. This transfers nuclear development from the military to the civilian sector. So, so nuclear development from this point on is more, more of a civilian contractor thing. Sure, maybe the military is still in, you know, communicating with this uh, civilian contractor. These civilian contractors, sorry, gassy. But n- military is not involved in the nuclear development any- anymore. Uh, well, directly, anyway. January 1st, 1947, the Atomic Energy Act goes into effect. The Atomic Energy Commission gained control of all assets, buildings, labs, plants, etc., that the military had used researching and developing nuclear devices. So... Again, just a little more layman's terms. Everything the military had done is now transferred to civilian control. Now, around this time, Muroc Air Force Base, uh, Army Airfield, sorry, not Air Force Base, Muroc Army Airfield, they begin to test experimental aircraft following World War II. So again, Muroc, this is around that that salt, uh, that, uh, that, that dry lake bed out in Southern California. March 29th, 1947, we see the Truman Doctrine announced to Congress. This was a policy aimed at countering Soviet expansion and is considered by some to be the beginning of the Cold War. Hmm. July 26th, 1947, Truman signed into law the National Security Act due to rising tensions between the U.S. and the USSR. The Central Central Intelligence Agency is born. September 18th, 1947, United States Air Force is officially established with the swearing-in of, of Stuart Symington as Secretary of the Air Force. So, going back to Miroc, this is where a lot of experimental aircraft are done. Of course, I said that mm-hmm. a couple, couple sentences ago. Right. You familiar with Chuck Yeager, at least the name? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, he was an experimental pilot. October 14th, 1947, Chuck Yeager flew experimental rocket-powered plane, the Bell X-1. Here's the Bell X-1. Oh, okay, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. like a torpedo with wings. Yep. So he flies the Bell X-1, which reached Mach 1.06. Mach 1 is from uh, what I remember is is the speed of sound. Yeah, One. Yeah. So Mach 1.06 would be 6% faster than the speed of sound, which would equate to 813 miles per hour. Speed of sound is roughly 767 miles per hour. This depends on a lot of things. Uh, People might come up with figures that are a little lower, maybe a little higher. This depends on a lot of things. Uh, The air temperature, the air density, blah, blah. Uh, But you know what? Those are the numbers I researched, found, and that's what I'm going with. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So he was the first human to exceed the speed of sound. Yep. Yeah. And I don't worry, folks. We're we're eight minutes from two hours, and we're wrapping up. Don't worry. We're so far in. <laughs> we haven't even touched Area 51 yet either. <laughs> like, oh no. Well, so I've I've snuck in. We've touched on it a couple times. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Secretly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we've touched Area 51. Touched the area. <laughs> the area's been touched upon. About 51 times. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, again, October 14th, 1947, we see Chuck Yeager. He exceeds the first man to exceed the speed of sound in the Bell X1. December 20th, 1947, 
Magazine Aviation Week and the Los Angeles Times had acquired a leaked story of Jaeger's flight. Magazine was out on the 20th of December. The cover story of the paper was released on the 22nd. Army's pissed. And they're immediately threatening legal action. And I say the Army because, yeah, the the Air Force had been established, but technically we're still under the Army Air Force. Mm -hmm. But Army's pissed, and they threaten legal action because they didn't want this leaked. Um, 1948, we see Korea, which... uh, and sorry, I I shouldn't have uh, I shouldn't have inserted this here, but we're gonna go to Korea for a minute. So Korea that had been a Japanese conquered territory uh, during uh, well before and during World War II. So after our occupation of Japan, it was basically all the spoils of Japan, all the territories they had conquered, including China and uh, Korea. <clears throat> uh, the Allies uh, basically say, well. You don't get that anymore. You lost your you lost your rights because you you were uh, you were terrible people, and so this is this is essentially split by the U, between the USSR and the US at the thirty eighth parallel. Um, Did the USSR have control over at this point North Korea? So I mean, yeah, technically. So so the US and the USSR the the thirty eighth parallel. You know, when you're looking at a map, you have your longitude and and uh, and uh, what's the other one? Lateral lines, uh, yeah, longitude, whatever. Latitude. Uh, yeah. So so they they basically split up Korea, the USSR and the and the US. Uh, mm-hmm. So the US, they're basically occupying what is South Korea. The USSR is basically occupying what is North Korea. Uh, the Korean War, it's interesting. It's, it's often overlooked. Um, Frequently overlooked. It is. It, yeah. It's kind of looked at as an addendum to World War II. In, mm-hmm. in, in a sense, it is. Uh, but but definitely, I mean, it's its its own separate war. It yeah. was it was pretty pretty fucking intense. Mm-hmm. But for me, I mean, this this is. Yeah, we can, we can argue that the Cold War had already started for me. This is this is a pivotal moment. Mm-hmm. So anyway, sorry. Let's let's get back on February tenth, nineteen forty eight. Muroc Airfield was redesignated Muroc Air Force Base because again the Air Force was Air Force. Created. So yeah. it's not the Army now; it's the Air Force. June tenth, nineteen forty eight. Stuart Simington. Remember, he's a uh, oh maybe did I say uh, mention him earlier? I did, yeah, but. Sir. Uh, okay, yeah, I did. So, Stuart Simington, Secretary of the Air Force, he, uh, well, he bashfully agrees that uh, the sound barrier had, in fact, been... Well, I, I guess we went 800 miles an hour. Gosh, I'm so... So that's a thing now. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, so, so... <laughs> So, oh, shucks. So, so there's. I don't know, Rick. I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so, so there's finally public admission that yeah, there's there's aircraft that had uh, that had broken the sound barrier. So, are you familiar with Edwards Air Force Base, Jacob? I am. Okay, so Muroc Air Force Base is renamed Edwards Air Force Base. Okay. Captain Glenn Edwards had flown an A-20 Havoc light bomber in the North African campaign of World War II. He died in a crash while experimenting the... 
He died in a crash while experimenting the Northrop YB-49. Now look at this thing. It looks... It's it, it's like a, obviously the early concept of the B-2 bomber. That is exactly what it is. It's a boomerang. 1949. We oh, had, that was in 1949? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry, I didn't look at that. That's insane. Yeah, this is 1949. But yes, <sighs> yes, this is indeed... Tell me pre- aliens aren't real. This is indeed, <laughs> indeed the predecessor to the B-2 spirit. God, dude, no way. Aliens. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on. Did, are the aliens the only one? Are alien, uh, for the, of course, you guys can't see this. This this plane is basically a flying triangle. That's yeah, what this thing is. Tell me. A flying. <laughs> look at this thing and tell me the aliens didn't work telepathically. With the U.S. They government, trans- they That's used where those they, ideas came from. They were transmitted. They Bluetoothed. They took. They took. <laughs> the, they took they the. Gave us Bluetooth. They took the DMT. They deprived themselves of oxygen, and they used the Bluetooth. Honestly, they bit them with their Bluetooth, and that is they transferred the inter- the information. With their, like their blue poison. teeth. It's like their venom. Their venom is okay. information. The, the we blue, gotta get back the on The blue topic. is poison and their teeth are the injectors okay. of poison. <laughs> Beautifully. Oh, I'm so hungry, dude. Let's wrap this up. Come on. We're getting there. Hey, we're having fun. I know, but I'm so <laughs> hungry. We're having fun here. Dude, we're going to have so much food here in a little bit. 1948. Sorry. <laughs> I was just kidding the year is 1950 june 25th 1950 the korean war begins it does in three years later july 27th 1953 we go back to the like it's often overlooked you give it one sentence (laughs) okay so well it began and then it ended (laughs) in 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 the heart of uh in the heart of trying to wrap this up yeah we're, we're gonna overlook it but you know what you know what since you're a cheeky we're going to dive into it a little bit. Oh my what God. now? Now you're going to make Jacob hungrier. So this was this was an interesting war. So this is, we can say this is the first conflict between between the West and the East, between capitalism and, and communism. Because essentially the Russians had been arming the North Koreans. Now, the United States, they had been... Mm, they hadn't really armed the South. They just, they thought things were going to be okay. And the North Koreans, they just all of a sudden, uh, uh, what's his name? Kim, Kim Sun, uh, I can't remember the, the, uh, uh, I can't remember his Kim name. Kim Jong-il? No, before. Before but, him? But, but one of the, the, the Kim, the Kim at the time, he, he basically does this blitzkrieg and they just storm the South. They, they take over Seoul and they push they pushed the South Koreans down basically to the beaches. Jesus. And finally, the United States is saying, well, well they're backed by communists and we don't mm, want the communists. I guess I'll help out. Yeah. So <laughs> we get involved. Now, we we look at MacArthur. He was essentially at this time, he, he was the, he was the, uh, he was the, Basically, the general of of the Allied forces in the Pacific Theater. Still, he was essentially the Emperor of Japan. He basically, I mean, he was kind of the last of the old style generals in in history. Mm-hmm. 
So basically whatever he said went. And the initial objective of the Korean War was just to push push things back past uh, up to the 38th parallel. That happens. MacArthur wants more. And the U.S. Uh, Truman's basically like, okay. So the Chinese are getting nervous. And if the Chinese get involved, stop. Don't go any further. Yeah. So we put, push the North Koreans up towards the Yellow River, basically the border of China. And China eventually, I mean, they get involved. China gets involved in this war. And they say their reasoning here is, you know, think think of this. Think of this, United States. How would you have reacted if we invaded Mexico? What would you have done? Then pushed all the way up to the Rio Grande. What would you have done? Yeah. U.S. would have been involved in that. Yeah. So the Chinese got involved, and there's there's a really, uh, I mean, it's a brutal part of part of the Korean War, um, but uh, the Frozen Chosen. That's there's just this immense battle in the middle of winter between the U.S. forces and the Chinese. It's brutal. People are freezing to death. Jesus. And it's kind of one of those things. U.S. are technically better equipped, but the Chinese they just outnumber them. In the Chinese, uh, Mao. Uh, we're, we're using a lot of the art of war. So a lot of stealth, a lot of, uh, uh, let's not use roads to transport our troops. Let's go over land. Real and quick. Mao was a sociopath that committed mass genocide. Yeah. Mao was, yeah, some, something else for sure. Anyway, let's, let's get past it. We're wrapping things up. Don't worry people. And don't worry, Jacob. We're going to eat soon. It's okay. Get so anyway, so there's the Korean War. We do see some development of uh, some some interesting fighters at the time. Uh, one of being uh, wow. the F-104 Starfighter. We're gonna get to that here just brief, uh, in just a little bit. January 11th, 1951, the Nevada test site was established, located 65 miles northwest of Las Vegas for the purpose of nuclear testing. Various testing sites are divided up into different areas. Now, quote unquote emphasis. On the areas. There is emphasis on that. However, well, we'll get to this. January 27th, 1951. A one kiloton uh, of TNT is dropped on Frenchman Flat. This is northeast section of Area 5 of the nuclear test site. And we see an interesting thing. So um, I can't... I do have it written somewhere. I can't remember. So we're seeing a lot of nuclear weapons being tested above ground. But... Not too many. There was, I, geez, can't remember the test. There were a few, there were, there were, uh, what? I said, oh, geez, Rick. What? It's from from Rick and Morty. Oh. (laughs) Um, so. (laughs) What? (laughs) So. What? So, so after these, after, after, no, you're good, dude. I didn't, I didn't know, because I did, I didn't know what you're talking about. But, but, so following this, uh, I'm, and I can't emphasize this enough, sorry. (laughs) So, so these tests, these explosions, they're seen from a hundred miles away, at least. And imagine living like a hundred miles from this and you look out and you're like, the fuck is that? What happened? So that's like, what you just the, think the world's ending, dude. No, no, no. You don't think the world's ending because if you're in Vegas, you see these mushroom clouds going off in the back, in the in, in the background, in in the uh, 
in their horizon. Mm -hmm. So what are people doing? There's bars that are setting up these rooftop yeah, pavilions. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. are sitting out there watching the explosions Well, because they off. know that testing is going yeah. on there. Oh, yeah. They're aware of it. Yeah, But absolutely. imagine being something, someone <laughs> not aware of this. Like a tribe. <laughs> yeah. be like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's how their reaction would be. <laughs> what? What is it? <laughs> so, so, so later on in 1951, we return to the Shahan family briefly here. The Atomic Energy Commission informed the Shahan family of planned detonations in the area. Eventually, the next year, the Shahan family, they just abandoned the area because there's, there's explosions going on all over the place. <laughs> and, and no one just, knows about radiation. Well, that's not true. We do, but we're not. We're not too it savvy seriously. on it. Yeah, there's there's towns up uh, there's towns up in Utah. So the, just the wind, the way the winds uh, carry the fallout. Yeah. yeah, there's people getting cancer like crazy Jesus. later on in later on years up in Utah. Um, December nineteen fifty one, Clarence well, Johnson. All a bunch of fucking Mormons. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, goddamn radiation got them. No, no comment. Fuck Scientology. You're, I, I, I'm just messing. I don't, I can't. December 1951, Clarence Johnson visits Korea. So keep in mind, we've kind of skipped over Korean War. We're going back to the Korean War briefly. Clarence Johnson visits Korea. He meets with fighter pilots and he listens to input. And this led to the design and the creation of what would become known as the F-104 Starfighter. A supersonic interceptor. And look at this thing. I mean, this is this is, is pretty that sick. That that is the F-104. Pretty cool looking. Wow, yeah, it looks awesome. Almost looks like a modern jet. Supersonic interceptor. Yeah, it's, it's like just a, that's like a nineties. And especially at the time, like at the time, a supersonic interceptor. I mean, man, what a what a phrase to use back then. What a phrase to use right now. Sure. Yeah. Show you my supersonic yeah, interceptor. Yeah. No, no, keep <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> so mid 1950s mining at conception mine the groom mine that stopped because mills were destroyed by military activity so you know go we go back a ways uh a little over a decade yeah stuff bunk houses outhouses they're getting destroyed so yeah mining's basically done out here uh people are giving up during the night uh, the mid 1950s a variant of the b-47 stratajet and this is a this was a plane that could fly about or a, yeah a plane that would fly about thirty five thousand feet up in the air they start using this to surveil the soviet union now th this is interesting because the u.s basically approached russia the ussr and said hey uh well we're not on the best terms but um it would be okay if we just flew some planes over your land and just kept an eye on things. The USSR said no, and the US, uh, U.S. said, well, we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so, so these are these are rather these are rather flow, uh, slow flying aircraft. Yeah. And uh, the time now, the, what is this? This is the B fifty seven. This is the B forty seven Stratajet. This is the B forty seven Stratajet. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is routinely intercepted by by uh, MIG Soviet MIG fighters. You know, one thing the Stratojet it, it can hit about thirty five thousand feet. The MIGs, they're hitting 45,000 feet. Oh, so wow. 
and the MiGs are a little bit quicker. Yeah. And so this is routinely being intercepted. So, yeah, at this time, yeah, U.S. is trying to keep an eye on uh, communist Russia, and the Russians are like, yeah, okay, well, this isn't working for you guys. <laughs> so, good luck. 1953, United States Air Force officer John Seberg requested the proposal of an aircraft that could reach 70,000 feet. One Richard Lakehorn, also of the United States Air Force, requested a reconnaissance aircraft that could fly over 60,000 feet to avoid Soviet MiGs. Under codename Bald Eagle, the United States Air Force requested designs from... What what an American name. (laughs) Well, you know what? We gotta take these goddamn Soviets... We got to build a plane to do it. Bald Eagle. Bald Eagle. (laughs) There's nothing more American than that. (laughs) Something to spy on the Soviets with, and we're calling the project Bald Eagle. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. American. American as hell. American. So under codename Bald Eagle, the United States Air Force requested designs from small aircraft companies. Now, they, they wanted to go for the small aircraft companies because they believed that these these companies, they don't have a lot of orders coming in. They're going to be able to fo- focus on us. Well, Lockheed, not at all a small aircraft company. They, they became aware of this project, and so they just sent an unsolicited proposal they get word of this and they're like, oh no, hell, we want in on this. So they send in the design for the CL-282, which is basically, uh, I don't have a picture of it, but it's basically a, a modified, uh, modified. Uh, what was that earlier, Jet? The Starfighter, the F-104 Starfighter. So it's basically a modified uh, Starfighter. But in June 1954, the United States Air Force, they rejected the CL-282 and they instead chose the Bell X-16 which is a funky looking aircraft. It's got giant wings. He's an ugly son bitch. And they chose the mo- chose a modified B fifty seven. So the intelligence systems panel. What is that big ball sacking now from its. That's just the mount that it's on. This oh, a, oh. A, it's a model plane. It's yeah. not just clearing around. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was base. that's what it was doing. It was like a yeah. flying landing the, here. Uh, Oh. <laughs> yeah. It just drops down this big square from this. It's like an anchor. It's a plane anchor. Oh. Planker. Oh. It's a planker. <laughs> so, like I said, okay, so Lockheed came aware of this. They sent an unsolicited proposal. So, in June 1954, the United States uh, June 1954, United States Air Force they rejected the CL-282 and they chose the Bell X-16 and the modified B-57. The Intelligence Systems Panel. This is a group that advised the CIA and the United States Air Force on aerial reconnaissance. So this is a civilian panel. So this is a group of civilians kind of guiding, uh, you know, do guiding federal operations. And the this, CIA this, is like, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll take your ideas. <laughs> well, I mean, essentially, they, I mean, they kind of had a, uh, they had to more or less. Oh, this is a good proposal here. So, and this is, this is important. We're, we're close to the end here, guys. So the Intelligence Systems Panel, a group that advised the CIA and the United States Air Force on aerial reconnaissance, approved the CL-282. The Air Force, they weren't too, they weren't for it. But this panel, they said, yeah, this is good. They approved the CL-282 and they recommended it to the CIA. 
The panel also encouraged the CIA, rather than the United States Air Force, to fund the project. The belief here was that if the military, as opposed to the CIA, conducted flyovers during peacetime, a war might ensue. So, mm-hmm. uh, Richard M. Bissell, he was an offer of the CIA. He was put in charge of, a, of development and operation of a project for a plane that would be used for reconnaissance. Well, he fucked up and invented the first carpet cleaner. <laughs> That was a side action there. (laughs) November 1954, Dwight D. Eisenhower approved project presented from CIA known as Project Aquatone. 1955, the CIA was seeking a suitable location for testing of its project. Edwards Air Force Base, the usual location for experimental aircraft, was deemed too well known and thus unsuitable. We didn't want Russian spies looking at this. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone knew about Edwards at this point. It was famous. April 1955, Tony Levere. He was a test pilot at Lockheed. He's tasked by our boy Clarence Kelly Johnson to find a site for work on Project Aquatone. He conducts recon, finds what he believes to be a good location, and upon taking a survey team, including Johnson, to the site, Clarence is excited as hell. Quote from... uh, This is a quote from Clarence Kelly Johnson. Quote... We flew over it, and within 30 seconds, you knew that was the place. It was right by a dry lake, and we all looked at each other. It was another Edwards. So we wheeled around, landed on that lake, taxied up to one end of it. It was a perfect natural landing field, as smooth as a billiard table without anything being done to it. And this lake they landed on is located not too far from Conception Mine, Groom Mine. This is Groom Lake they landed on, and this is where... We see the development of what we know as Area 51. That was a fantastic finish to that. Thanks, man. I'm ready to fucking... <laughs> I am, I, I'm seriously, I'm ready to hear part two. I like want to listen to it myself now. That's... I would have listened to it before it even happened. That's... that's, that's <laughs> I'm going to fantasize about part good. two is going to go. That was good. You... You did. You done good, son. Thanks, man. You did. I had good. I had so much fun reading all this stuff. It was just. Did you feel good doing that, finishing it out like that? This was probably my favorite part of yeah. it. <laughs> so that's, that's not only sick. because it was over, but because it was awesome. Yeah, I have to pee so bad. Yeah. So we got. All right, let's close it up here. This let's has cheat. been episode nine of Life, Death, and Everything in Between. We are talking about Area Fifty One. This is the end of part one. Part two is coming out two weeks after part one comes out. Yep. So be looking for it soon. We're going to be putting it up on all the good stuff, Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, YouTube as well. Be sure to check it out. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been a long one. It has been a long one. Yes, this. Thank thank you very much for listening. Two hours and 16 minutes. That is (laughs) way over double (laughs) the length of any of our other episodes. And I couldn't be more excited about this one and part two. So stick around for it. It's a good one. Absolutely. Part two, it's probably going to be shorter, but it's going to be a little more fun unless you're into history. Yeah, no, no, no. We'll be definitely getting into the good stuff the meat of everything the real fun you know conspiracy real fun meat meat. ufos (laughs) bob lazar all that good stuff seriously thank you guys for listening this is this is my favorite episode so far i I, i'm seriously stoked about it anyway check us out on the next one be sure to listen rate subscribe and more and more input yeah, more input. Give us input. Let us know what you think. Seriously. 
Uh, we've taken a little, everybody's input so far, and uh, we're putting it to our best use possible. That's why you got two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, for real. Thank you guys so much. We love you. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye.